0: okay we'll go ahead and convene our work session to order welcome everyone we are pleased to be conducting the second work session of our FY 2024 budget cycle today we're going to be doing all things Department of Environmental Services which is a big organization and a lot of uh, lines of business so we will also have an opportunity to hear from representatives from our climate change energy and Environment Commission as well as our Transportation Commission and Fiscal Affairs Advisory Commission. And in addition, board colleagues, we also will have plenty of time, hopefully, for your questions. Hey, who
1: to- are you? You said, good, um, two, wait, so two
2: gluten-free words. Yeah,
0: like. And you'll also have an opportunity for questions for both staff and our commissioners. So for those who are following uh, not here, we also have our presentations. That will accompany today's uh, work session that are available along with all other budget information at our budget and finance webpage at arlingtonva.us. To get us started, I'll turn it over to Mr. Schwartz who will introduce staff.
3: Thank
4: you, Mr. Chair. I'm gonna turn it over to Mr. Manuel who has a number of uh, people from the DES team with him today. So over to you, Greg. Thank you, Mark. And and, uh, I will get underway. So I'm Greg Emanuel, director, and joining me today are most of the deputy directors, bureau chiefs, and budget gurus across those many DES funds I'll cover today. They are just kind of the pointy end of the sphere of roughly 800 staff members out there working and delivering our services today, um, plus our contract services. So we're gonna cover some general topics on safety and sustainability first, equity and scooters, and I'll go more deeply into the specifics of the general fund And within that, I'm gonna give kind of a brief status remarks on all things happening with Arlington Transit, since there's a lot of board and community interest there. And then uh, Mr. Chairman, we can break after the general fund uh, to work in those um, commission members. So a quick context and reminder why we're here and how we serve the community to make it accessible, resilient, and sustainable. So really most of what we do in the department is operations and maintenance and excellent customer service, where increasingly we're using more innovative technology. So this is kind of the big picture behind more than 346 million and 829.6 FTEs that are included in the proposed budget across all those funds. Uh, the, The new solar facility down in Pennsylvania County recently became operational which is projected to save us $2.6 million across funds based on this year's market dynamics. And our massive 4 million gallon detention facility down at Cardinal Elementary is nearly complete. Uh, we completed an important resiliency project with a 16-inch water line interconnected with the Fairfax water system. That's a first step for emergency use if we have supply challenges from the aqueduct. And uh, for our most valuable asset, our people, uh, we had this the lowest total case safety incident rate since 2011. That is the lowest rate in recent history, and it's really about keeping our people safe as they work in dangerous field conditions every day. And while our incident rate was down, our lost work days jumped up, so we are putting some more attention to basically the case management of those incidents. So with all those competing priorities in the department, how do we approach the budget? Well, we focused on budget reductions that would maintain current service delivery, Uh, and so we looked at areas where we had budget savings or could realign, uh, specifically shifting funding to other sources. We also continued our focus on implementing this EP roadmap and the resources that go with those to meet those goals. And of course, we're still responding to kind of the new post-COVID norms with increasing inflationary costs, and that's reflected in our household solid waste rate going up. Um, transit ridership continues to evolve, and at the same time, we're looking at the future of transit for the next 10 years with a transit strategic plan. So we're on that later, but it's really a balancing act of today's reality and behaviors versus our future aspirations and getting riders back on art. So we have to remain really open and flexible about how we're gonna deliver our services if our revenues are down, or community or or employer behaviors change for the long term, especially for areas like parking, commuter services, and transit. With the new Maplewood Solar Farm going operational this past December, uh, this uh, chart demonstrates the amount of energy we are using in Arlington and where the power is consumed. So Maplewood produces an amount more than 80% of our energy use. To reach our 100% renewable goal for county operations, we also rely on Dominion Energy Virginia's green power program options, and of course, our on site solar installations at various county facilities for the balance. But of course, it's more than about Maplewood, and we continue to make progress across the entire arc of energy users, policy and project areas, big and small. So, on the smaller end, uh, an example. So based on the mechanical and electrical specifics of conceptual design alternatives and system test fits, just last Friday, we decided to move ahead with a gas-to-electric boiler conversion for the 3,700 south four-mile run building that houses cultural affairs. On the bigger potential area, uh, we've established partnerships with NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab, for technical support on a Barcroft Apartments Energy Upgrades grant proposal. We just received our third electric school bus in our joint efforts with APS. The first two are in service with positive reviews so far. Uh, We have big infrastructure challenges at at, uh, the Trade Center if we want to go further there. In many areas, we are leading regionally, but we aren't letting up. Um, Five million square feet of sustainable design was entitled under construction in 22 under our Green Building Incentive Programs. Between Arlington uh, government and APS, we have the most LEED certified and net zero energy buildings in the region. And our fleet EV transition is leading our regional peers on a percentage basis, more on that later. In our single family neighborhoods, people continue to invest in solar systems and EV charges with our nonprofit partner, Solar United Neighbors, with 104 solar ads in 22. And so while those energy investments are embedded throughout the whole county budget, Here's a few more direct and obvious investments. So we'll start at the 7 o'clock position and go clockwise. Uh, The the budget includes $861,000 between one-time funding for EV vehicles and charging equipment for the public and county fleet. And then another $200,000 in one-time funding to help execute the CEP roadmap. $475,000 in PAYGO for energy energy efficiency facility investments. And then finally, as mentioned earlier, that savings of $2.6 million across all funds due to the Maplewood. That's all in addition to the $1 million Climate Action Fund, which the Board approved last year. And we have three specific allocation requests for that million dollars. The first adds $65,000 in uh, 23 and $150,000 in 24 to PAYGO funds to accelerate the pace of facility energy investments with a closer study of electrification at the Madison Community Center and a retrofit to another facility, TBD. Then another 165,023 and 185 and 24 to accelerate public accessible EV charging, now that we're starting to get some firm mem- numbers in on specific site designs. And then another 200,000 for studying community choice aggregation in more detail, assuming we get past the legal hurdles and we're looking Working with the county attorney's office on that right now. So, in total, those recommendations allocate 765,000 of the million and leave 235 unallocated for future investments. As a percentage of fleet for our non public safety sedans, we're on a trajectory toward 58% if all of our FY24 plan buys execute, which would then exceed what we had established as a 40% by 25 roadmap goal. So, you know, due to the small size of our county, EVs work out really well for most of our mission needs, and that puts us in a strong position relative to our neighbors where they have different uh, battery and mileage dynamics, and there they've tended to favor hybrid options. We are also focused, though, not just on the sedans, but the overall size of the fleet. So from 22 to 23, we've reduced our non-public safety um, light fleet overall by 10 vehicles. Uh, 15 vehicle reduction sedans, and then some shifts to small SUVs because as you drive around the roads, uh, the fleet fleet vehicle options out there keep changing. Um, We will continue to aggressively pursue replacement vehicles with electric options as those replacements come due. It's really a function of market availability, um, replacement schedules, and still meeting those mission needs of the departments. We'll also be piloting the use of three electric bikes as part of our county motor pool uh, for county employees to check out and use as needed. Excuse me. Our department continues to focus on DEI initiatives both internally and in our approach to delivering services. Uh, the transit strategic plan is currently underway and the Arlington Community Community Services uh, strategic plan will start soon. Both these plans will include an equity lens Uh, We'll continue to analyze the services that we deliver in our community with an equity lens. Envision Zero is an example of that. Hold on that thought for two slides. In addition, our DES-DEI committee work continues to unfold. Uh, We now have some new members uh, on a 22-member team. Each subcommittee has been paired with a sponsor from the DES executive leadership team. And we're making heavy use of consultants to support our evolving work, trying some unique training methods that work, particularly in the trades environment. One of the six goals of our Vision Zero program is to prioritize transportation safety investments equitably in the most vulnerable communities. And I don't want to steal Christine Baker's thunder. This is just a sneak peek, and our team is finalizing that transportation equity analysis which compares equity indicators to crash data to determine how and if imbalances in social opportunity or locations of origin relate to transportation safety. So we'll share all those findings coming up in the spring and create a plan to address the findings. So again, our commuter services team provides Arlington residents, and employees, and businesses and visitors with those information and services to support a vibrant and livable community. So we'll be updating our commuter assistance program strategic plan. Uh, it's an opportunity to look at the program as a blank slate, uh, look at the objectives, the marketplace, travel behaviors, needs and priorities, and make those unbiased choices. Uh, across the bottom there, you can see we've been working hard to meeting the mobility needs of all, including $5, million, excuse me, $5 annual capital bike share membership to those on state and federal assistance programs. Uh, ensuring that e-bikes, e-scooters, and motorized skateboards are provided throughout the county with discounts for those who may need assistance. Uh, commuter stores to provide access for customers, including those who live their lives on a kind of a cash basis and uh, outreach throughout the year with over 160 events to explain and promote those transit benefits and all transit, bike, and walk options available. So speaking of uh, micro-mobility, we are aware of those concerns over scooter parking and continue to work with our vendors on these issues. The operator companies uh, have to abide by the program requirements, which include parking scooters in a safe location within the public right-of-way. Not all of their users comply. Uh, So we have set it up so the public can now use the Report a Problem app to report those misparked scooters, and that will alert the scooter operator companies to collect their devices. This is a a recent evolution. Um, Again, using the app, the residents can just drop a pin. Then now, um, using our QSAN app, the request automatically goes to the right scooter company from the drop-down menu, and then they've got uh, two hours to uh, get after it. Previously, our mobility team was in the middle of that, and this is just much more efficient and timely. Uh, So on the right there, the map shows uh, most of the data reported so far. That shows up in the higher-density corridors. Um, We'll see how it goes, but hopefully that will improve the service as well. Okay, so those are general topics. Let's move into the specifics of the general fund. So... The general fund budget for 24 is a 4% increase for the year in expenses and a 3% increase in net tax support. About 34% of our general fund DS budget is funded by tax support. So the increase in our expenditure budget is mainly driven by personnel and contractual increases. And the contractual increases are primarily increasing due to transit operating costs. Again, we looked at where we could find efficiencies and savings when we are faced with budget reductions uh, with minimal impact to our service delivery. So uh, we're proposing eliminating two vacant positions in our facilities bureau, an accounting technician and a facilities project specialist. We think we can absorb those and we'll have minimal impacts. Uh, We're also proposing reducing our motor pool vehicle from 17 to 14 based on usage and then hopefully the three e-bikes will replace those three vehicles in usage. Um, We propose eliminating our annual rock and recycling event, which engages the community about solid waste management and food scraps. Although it is a popular program with kids and parents, it's a non-core event that we provide. Uh, Then we are proposing reducing funding for back office items where we continue to have savings post-COVID like office supplies and printing. The remaining four reductions there, I would characterize as shifting funding sources to other that are less constrained this year, which includes transferring one um, position, uh, capital projects coordinator to the TCF. Lastly, there were a few targeted budget adds across the department uh, where lines of business and catered important needs. I previously mentioned the 200,000 for energy and the one-time funding to supplement the ongoing air budget. On the transit side, we propose adding 115,000 for additional security at our Shirlington bus station where we've had some issues with break-ins after hours and safety concerns raised from our bus drivers using the facilities there. Uh, and in operations, we're adding a one-time funding to fund inflationary increases for heavy equipment replacement. A quick look at some of our other larger revenue sources in the general fund. For art revenue, we're increasing our revenue projections slightly compared to last year. Parking meter revenue for the last couple of years has shown a steady recovery. We've seen it kind of leveling off in 23, and we're tracking a little bit behind our 23 budget, so our 24 budget reflects that. Commuter store fees, of course, come from commissions, and that's tied to public transit ridership, so uh, we are lowering our budget uh, revenue a little bit compared to 23. And uh, as we increase the base budget for uh, permit and right-of-way fees uh, by 475 excuse me, 470,000 uh, to align with the recent trends and expected continued robust construction timeline. In addition, the fees themselves uh, had an inflationary adjustment of 5.2% to cover cost, uh, to cost recover the salary and contractual increases. We'll hit the household solid waste rate in a couple of slides in more detail. And then finally there with the little red new thing, uh, we added a new topsoil fee for residents to be able to come to the Trade Center and purchase For $40 a cubic yard, the topsoil that meets the new criteria of our LDA 2.0. So here's a little more detail on the parking meter revenue recovery. Uh, That partial orange line in the middle shows the current year, and then the levying off. There are obviously a lot of dynamics in parking in the community right now from telework policies and declining parking inventory due to capital projects temporarily or long term bike lanes and toses and all those dynamics and trade-offs we make in the right-of-way. Uh, parking rates will last raise in 19, and of course we're getting underway with our grant-funded performance parking project. Um, any revenue impacts we may see from that are not yet included in this revenue projection since that is not the goal of the, the demonstration project. Okay, a deeper dive on the household solid waste rate. You've seen this slide at the manager's rollout. Um, We're at the close of uh, two variable, very favorable multi-year contracts, which are the primary drivers in this year's proposed increases. So this graphic shows the puts and takes. Um, The annual rate is proposed to increase by just over $100. Refuse collection costs are increasing. Our base contract with ADS was up, and based on negotiated rates for their first option year, the costs are increasing based on inflation, driver shortages, supply chain issues, increased fuel and equipment costs. Our ADS contract is eight years old, and our uh, annual contract had been negotiated a a CPI adjustment of only 50%. The second contract is the Materials Recovery Facility or MRF contract, and that's also increasing. It was a 10-year-old contract with an artificially low processing fee and no adjustment for CPI, which then benefited our household rate players uh, for many years. So one of our budget proposals would shift a portion of the cost of the five community recycling centers to be paid for by this rate, increasing that rate uh, by $3.72, as those customers are heavy users of the service. Then there's salaries and benefits, as another $1.82, and there's a a one-time takeaway for the zero waste plan, which was one-time funding that was funded last year. Finally, we are working with ADS to finalize the contract. Uh, We're in negotiations right now, and uh, before the board adopts, we may be coming back with a little bit of adjustment uh, off this rate. We'll see, uh, we just don't wanna negotiate in public on that. Uh, The $100 uh, rate will bring, uh, excuse me, the $100 proposed increase will bring it to just uh, $408.54. And while that is a significant one year increase, the graph on the upper, the graph uh, shows here that we've been basically flat since 2017, even with the successful addition of yard waste and food waste. But with that increase, we are still providing a more reliable and more comprehensive level of quality services at lower cost relative to our nearby jurisdictions, Alexander and Fairfax, both at $500 and above. Next, I'll highlight a few of the many dynamics in transit. Uh, Since last summer, we've been working through the transit strategic plan, as required by DERPT, our funding partner. Uh, The TSP process is using ridership data from before and after and during the pandemic, service performance data, and community engagement to inform our path for the next 10 years. So the, the team has conducted gap analysis to project where service might be improved uh, to compare current bus deployment patterns against projected population, job, and development trends. And they also evaluated where ART could expand the span of service hours or increase the bus frequency. And the public engagement team has conducted four opportunities for feedback on ART bus service and priorities with virtual meetings, online forums, and in-person events uh, so that we make sure that we're collecting that input in an equitable way and reaching everyone. And we'll be launching another round of common opportunity this spring after we develop the specific draft recommendations. On ridership, uh, it's continuing to recover slowly but remains persistently below the pre-pandemic levels given those employment behavioral changes with telework. So again, the gold line in the middle kind of shows uh, this year's ridership, somewhere between the FY20 uh, brown highs at the top, pre-pandemic, and then the green lows of the pandemic in 21. Uh, the notes on the right indicate year-to-date comparisons. So we're on track to meet our budget projections for FY23 revenue, and we've increased our 24 revenue budget just slightly based on those results. Uh, again, we're kind of in that uh, ongoing op- cautiously optimistic mode, but uncertain then on the timing and the slope of recovery. Additionally, and perhaps uh, just as if not more important, Metro's better bus plans and then the Metro general funding pressures in 25 may impact our local service delivery and put more pressure on ART to fill any gaps. We will know more from Metrobus on their better bus plans later this month. Uh, Going a little deeper into ridership recovery, the next few slides show disaggregated data by route, comparing the pre-pandemic October 2019 to post-pandemic October 2022. So the color legend here shows ridership recovery by relative gradation. So the redder and darker is is the most significant drop compared to like the dark green such as Route 75 where the ridership is off about 20%. Generally, the routes that uh, provide the peak service have seen the most drop, which is kind of consistent with what we're seeing elsewhere in our traffic data. The chart on the right shows weekday riderships by route, both total riders for the month and average daily percentage change. This slide seems to show, this slide shows the same information, but for Saturday routes. And as you can see from the lack of red on this map, weekend routes as a whole tend to be doing better recovering to pre-pandemic levels. And of course, the dynamic is similar than on our Sunday routes. On a positive transit note, we anticipate moving ahead with a 16M uh, coming soon, connecting Skyline, Columbia Pike, Pentagon City and Crystal City. Assuming a metro budget passing in April, we'll start at the 16M with 12-minute headways all day, which will likely be implemented by late June, uh, or certainly by 1 July. So, improving those headways then to six minutes during the peak was the original goal. Getting there will ultimately depend on two things, the NBTC funding and the amount that we get relative to our $6.4 million request we got some indications that may be reduced. The other thing is Metro having sufficient drivers. Um, So FY24 includes a full year of funding. It's included then for the 41 and 45 expansion to ensure that neighborhood maintains that existing service levels, or excuse me, currently provided by the Metro 16G. At that 988,000 additional, it's a significant driver of increases in our transit budget uh, but that portion is not recovered uh, by revenue or DRPT and is being paid for by TCF funding. Meanwhile, our fair free, fair free program allowed students to, to ride starting in January without an iRide card. Um, they have the flexibility now to use both a student ID and an iRide card. but We're also still trying to get those iRide cards out there to everyone to have a better metric tracking. And so we set ourselves up for success with our students, uh, hoping that they will soon be able to transfer to Metrobus once we execute a a memorandum agreement. Uh, We've been making steady progress with Metrobus on that, and our plan is to get it to the board in April or May, which would then allow us to start Metrobus free for students, hopefully before the end of the school year. The total FY24 budget for student fareless pilot is going to be 434,000, which includes $360,000 $360,000 in the metro budget to pay for that student transfer of $2 a ride. The Art No Fair program is a significant contributor to getting the students back on transit as shown in this chart. Uh, the number of student riders since December 2020 when uh, the t- pandemic uh, had them uh, not in school. We've had over 92,000 student riders since the start of the pilot uh, in February 2022 through 2023 in January. Also in the month of January, if you kind of compare that um, to a monthly average of the quarter 119 uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, we're up higher more than 20% of where we were pre-pandemic, which is great. We're also working on promotion and uptake in our low-income pilot, which has distributed over 2,900 preloaded fare cards to low-income individuals We'll continue that program in 24, budgeting $532,000 with a goal to distribute an additional 3,500 new cards. Um, uh, we preload those cards with $150 worth of uh, trip. To date, uh, 40% of our eligible residents have picked up that free Smart Trip card, and we're exploring opportunities for another um, free fare program by reprogramming remaining grant money from I-66 uh, commuter choice grant that we have. Uh, So more on that later. We'll bring that to the board at the appropriate time. Finally, um, our long-awaited bus operations and maintenance facility in Green Valley is taking shape. So the image on the left here shows the solar canopy, which is included in the plans. The underground and distribution upgrades are fully paid for also. And uh, while you can see on the right there in the picture, the steel is under construction. We are simultaneously working on the design and change orders for the charging infrastructure for the initial four BEB purchase, as well as the transformers and switchgear and backup generator. And uh, those will be sized to handle many more buses than four and provide redundancy. So in other words, the ultimate number of BEBs, up to 63 on the site, it's fully scalable, and we can maintain daily operations as we add on because the charging expansion can occur in that overhead canopy and then drop down. The timing of the future bus buys and the vehicle type we choose are of great interest and we understand the board's direction on that. C2E2 in their recent letter raised a lot of great questions about assumptions and when we start iterating on the ZEB consultant report, we'll be looking at those details to make sure those are covered. Um, Everything from route modeling to replacement ratios, uh, which are informed not just by the bus range, but the operational reliability of the entire system which includes that charging equipment. Uh, We also need to involve our service provider, First Transit, more details on this. Uh, And fortunately, they have the perspective from other properties and agencies that they've worked through the whole charging, maintenance, and scheduling dynamics um, uh, in in different properties. So uh, fundamental, of course, to this ongoing and future discussion is our projected service plan. Uh, We need a ZEB transition plan that works to provide reliable service in our known limited tight space and we'll get more information um, as a transit, transit strategic plan uh, is under development. And of course, the WMATA Better Bus decisions and we'll see those collectively over the next two months. Uh, bottom line, we're aggressively pursuing a sustainable, robust, and reliable service. And Mr. Chair, I think uh, this might be a good place for a break. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Mr. Emanuel, Thank you. and I now uh, <clears throat> like to take this opportunity since I think most of the comments from our commissions um, are pertaining to general fund activities, so we only have space for a couple of you at a time, so why don't we start off with uh, Joan McIntyre and Chris Slatt, we'll have you two up first and then we'll get to FAC in two parts. So Ms. McIntyre, you can go ahead and begin.
5: Okay, thank you, good evening. Just uh, to, for the record, I'm Joan McIntyre, Chair of the Climate Change, Energy and Environment Commission and I appreciate and thank you for um, inviting me to make comments. Um, Overall, um, you know, looking at the budget, there's a lot of good things in there, but I think overall there's probably more that can be done to address the climate crisis. Um, certainly appreciate what's been done in terms of getting to the 100% renewable energy for our electricity for the county operations. The solar co-op continues to be very successful and the county's making progress in putting solar on those facilities where it's necessary and working towards the EV charger infrastructure both and, and also EV um, vehicles for the, the conversion of the fleet. So. All good and, and commendable. And we're certainly very much looking forward to um, working with Bell Egger as he takes on his um, position in the new Office of Climate Coordination and Policy. A uh, little bit disappointed that they're actually dropping the second position there. I think, you know, at the time of what we're having to deal with, um, we need the resources there in order to um, progress. Um, and overall, the ART budget. Budget itself seems to be staying fairly stable on that. So, again, looking at that in condition to what the asbestos uh, appreciate um, getting some of the extra details of what they're looking at at facilities. Um, would like to actually get more information of what facilities continue to go under um, renovation and retrofits um, and which ones actually have um, gas systems that should be changed. So, you know, get, getting into that detail. But And the other is using some of those funds out of the 1 million CEP is I'm assuming that that actually is additive of the extra cost of kind of the um, additional um, upfront expenses on that rather than the retrofits that would be generally part of of general um, retrofitting of of buildings. Um, Overall, I think in terms of the 1 million, one thing that seems to be really missing and which I know we talked a lot last year is getting to the other 96 percent of carbon emissions which is the general public and that that's something that i think we need to be putting a lot more attention especially with the investment um reduction act that there's a lot of money out there that people and property owners can take advantage of but this isn't easy it's extremely complex and people are going to need the help i know um the air team has a number of proposals in terms of outreach. Um, we kind of talked about having a one-stop shop, but the real kind of priority needs to be, you know, geared towards um, low-income, moderate-income, small businesses, um, and, and again, lots of funding out there, but, you know, making kind of actually helping people make it through all the bureaucracy and that is, is pretty incredible. So I think every mo- funding that we put in there is going to, Pay back Arlington and the Arlington community by lots more. I you know, can't give you the numbers, but I would suspect it would be pretty pretty great. and in some cases, for a lot of people it's just that extra assistance of trying to understand because it's complicated. It's complicated even for those of us that have a little sense of, of what, what, what things are all about. so um, that's one area that I think we really need to be kind of continuing to work on um, to make sure that, that we're really moving for progress, um, looking forward to um, hearing more about the strategic transit plan, transit st- strategy plan as it comes forward. I mean, we're clearly support moving towards a, a very ambitious and robust transit strategy that really can help people get out of their cars because that's a key, crucial element of, of getting to um, carbon neutrality is, is we just got to get out of the cars and we just need something that's extremely convenient and affordable Um, for people. And again, you know, I think we'll have lots more discussions on the art bus transition. Um, Getting people out of the car is crucial, but also electrifying and moving forward as quick as possible on that. Again, lots of money is coming out there. We probably need to be careful that we're not losing the opportunities to move forward when we have it. Um, And finally, just, you know, Uh, One, actually one minor thing is I know we're starting to get revenues from the plastic tax funds of $300,000. I honestly wish it would be less than that um, because that's still an awful lot of plastic bags. Um, But the question is, is how is it going to be funded and is it going to be really additive and is there opportunities even to be creative to think about it in terms of equity issues and you know, what types of things that, um, kind of low-moderate people face when, you know, kind of having to deal with some of these these issues. So um, we expect some creativity. Um, in general, you know, we're, we are in a climate crisis, and it really is going to be an all-of-government and all-of-community all, of government, an all, all, all of community approach, and what we need most of all is leadership. Um, I think we know what we need to do. It's just kind of getting forward, so looking forward to the discussions on the budget over the coming month and hope we get to something that really keeps that really on top of things. Thank you.
0: Thank you for your comments, we'll appreciate it. And uh, Chair of our Transportation Commission, Mr. Schlatt.
6: Thank you very much. Uh, Chris Slatt, Chair of the Transportation Commission. I will try and be very brief. Um, We are often more focused on the capital budget, but there's always operating budget uh, implications here. Um, So first off, uh, we just want to make sure that the county, we have a very ambitious capital program, and we want to make sure that through our operating budget, we are maintaining the capacity to actually implement that capital uh, program, as far as having enough project managers and uh, public engagement specialists uh, and, uh, you know, paying them enough to retain them and keep that uh, that institutional knowledge to really be able to do projects justice, um, so that's uh, I think very important part of the operating budget. Um, we also want to ensure there's sufficient maintenance funding. We are building a lot of great infrastructure, um, from protected bike lanes to transit uh, transit uh, dedicated transit lanes um, and other things in the county. We want to make sure that uh, we're. You know, uh, being able to use them well by maintaining them properly. Um, we had heard some reports from staff in the past that uh, we might have been able to implement more protected bike lanes through repaving, um, except we didn't have enough money in the maintenance budget to maintain those protected bike lanes had we built them. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, we don't get into a similar situation in the future. Repaving is a really uh, uh, high impact, low low uh, low cost way for us to implement infrastructure. Uh, so we want to make sure we can take full advantage of those opportunities when we have them. Um, uh, I do want to reiterate uh, the transportation commission's uh, position on the 16M. We wrote to you when we were applying for the NVTC grant um, to say we think it's really important that we actually hit that six-minute headway number that we have promised the Columbia Pike community in the past. Uh, this is a, has a very long history of in, you know trying to improve transit service on the Pike, um, and the you know the commission feels that uh, uh, it's not something that should rely on a grant. It's something that we should make sure that we can do. Um, even if that uh, outside money doesn't come through. Um, so I wanted to get that in, that in there. Um, and then of course everybody's thinking about this uh, the ART um, Transit Strategic Plan um, and also the Zero Emission Bus Study. Um, and we just want to reiterate, um, make sure that we're really focused on the riders. Um, we think that the best way for ART to reduce emissions is to get people out of their single occupancy vehicles and get get people around sustainably. Um, and there is a certain tension right now where the technology is on the Zero Emission Buses um, you know, can they do the work um, without impacting things like reliability or flexibility in operations, or um, having enough space to store the buses? Um, so the commission just want to make wants to make sure that we don't, you know, leave the riders uh, sitting at the bus stop um, as we chase, you know, a glossy headline, or you know, the ability to say that oh, we've converted everything to zero emission. Um, never mind the fact that people have now bought cars because they couldn't reliably get around via our bus service because. We didn't have the flexibility to replace a bus that was out of service because the only remaining bus doesn't have the range for that route or um, all those sorts of things Um, we also think it's really important to keep in mind the weight of these vehicles Um, we have seen especially on columbia pike um, our existing buses already kind of tear up the pavement often um, from the weight of you know going over and over the same spot Um, And uh, what we've seen a lot of the increases in range in the battery electric buses have been through bigger batteries, not necessarily more energy-dense batteries. Um, And that additional weight um, does have important consequences that we need to be aware of. Um, So hopefully that met my uh, hope of being brief, and that's all I have for the TC. Thank you.
0: Both exceeded expectations by being, I'll call it concise, so thank you both. (laughs) And if you will um, do a little bit of a set change and allow our representatives from F.A.C., uh, Peter and Jillian, to come on up. But please don't go too far in case we have conversations and questions for you later. Thank you. So who's
3: beginning? I think I'm going to start. All Thank right. you very much. You. Jillian Burgess, Vice Chair of the Fiscal Affairs Advisory Commission. Um, we at F.A.C. decided this year to focus specifically on transit and Vision Zero, separately from the rest of DES, because we we think that it's such an, those two are such important programs. Um, and we met, first of all, the, the fact subcommittee likes, would like to thank DES staff for their time and um, for the immense amount of thought and, and the immense amount of thinking uh, that went into this budget and for their time meeting with us and, and talking through our questions. Um, Last night we met and as a as a commission we unanimously adopted one recommendation this one um, is that we recommend that the county board adopt the county managers proposed budget for Arlington transit and related to vision zero with additional funding to adjust Arlington transit service to increase ridership and to work with APS to eliminate the need to run school buses for older students in certain areas and to better serve families getting just to and from schools. Now, this is a little different. We, we often have recommendations that, that speak directly to the proposed budget. This, we wanted to emphasize really the need to, um, to increase ridership on Arlington Transit. We do know that the, the Transit Strategic Plan is, is coming up. We want to make sure that the adjustments that, that come there will increase ridership and specifically work with APS. Because we see this as not only an area that um, meets our safety and stain, sustainability goals, but also can save us money. Um, we really think that we need to start working targeted in a targeted way to eliminate the need to run school buses on certain runs, certain areas for older students um, as are appropriate. And then also to allow families to get to school. We've heard stories of families that when there's a doctor's appointment, they take the kid out of school for the entire day because they don't have a way to get the kid to and from school around the doctor's appointment, or examples like that. And then, of course, if the family can't get to a school, the family can't participate in the the school community. Um, We've been making future consideration recommendations around this for a while, so this is the first time we've elevated it to an official recommendation of the commission. we very much appreciate the, the work that's gone into Vision Zero, and we appreciate that, that this is a relatively new program that's still ramping up, so we don't have any recommendations to uh, increase or otherwise change the funding on Vision Zero, but we really appreciate staff's work there, and the investment um, in the work that's going on there, and also the willingness to do quick build projects, pilot projects, and, and be nimble with those. We also had a few, a few future considerations. Some of them are a little bit wordy. And in, in the interest of time, I wrote them, and it is my fault, mea culpa. But in the interest of time, I'll just summarize uh, the wordy ones. Um, first of all, performance measures. We, we at the Fiscal Affairs Advisory Commission are office fo- often focused on performance measures because you, you know you manage to what you measure. And we appreciate that the Arlington County budget has a lot of performance measures, but a lot of times those are focused on output not on, or on workload, and they're not exactly the, the targets that are as useful. And a lot of that, especially in the areas of transit and vision zero, is because we don't have a denominator. Like, we talk about how many bus stops we're making ADA accessible, but not how many bus stops are not today ADA accessible. Um, I know staff is working towards that, but that's a future consideration. We'd like to see that in the budget. Um, Number two, we continue to encourage you guys to work with Arlington Public Schools, as as mentioned. Um, Future consideration number three is we look forward to seeing more public-facing data on equity, both on transit service and with the Vision Zero dashboard. I'm very excited to see the slide that uh, Mr. Emanuel presented earlier. and Then finally, we encourage Arlington Transit to collect and analyze customer service data. We understand that that's been part of the transit strategic plan, and we think that going forward as we continue to try to increase ridership, that it makes sense to continue looking at that and making sure that we're serving our customers' needs because again, As as many of my fellow commissioners have mentioned, transit is the safest and most sustainable mode of transportation, so we are very much focused on making sure we're getting as many people onto transit as possible.
0: Thank you, Ms. Burgess. And now, Mr. Robertson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
7: Um, We have a single recommendation as well for the non-transit portion of uh, DES, uh, and that is that the... um, the board endorsed the county manager's uh, proposal. Uh, It was an 11 to one vote in this instance. The one person against it simply believed that the budget for DES is too large uh, and uh, expressed general concerns about fiscal restraint. Uh, So I I honestly believe that is often the case when we talk to you, the future considerations are perhaps a little more important than the the vote is. Uh, The first one is not really a future consideration but just a recognition that Uh, the county manager has done uh, and the staff uh, uh, that work for him and at DES uh, have done a terrific job in putting together a budget that in the you know fiscal realities we face makes uh, appropriate investments in the right places um, uh, while while recognizing that fiscal reality Uh, they're a terrific group of people for us to work with I want to echo everything that Jillian said about that Um, the FAC uh, believes um, that uh, continued investment to move to the future considerations, the genuine ones. FACT believes that um, uh, the, the investments that the county is beginning to make in stormwater uh, are urgently needed and that you will continue, you will need urgently to continue to make those kinds of investments uh, in the future um, uh, that exists in each of the three categories of stormwater capital, uh, uh, capacity, maintenance, capital, and stream quality. Climate change is going to continue to uh, create uh, challenges for all of us uh, around the globe related to weather risks that we don't know when the next 100-year storm will come to Arlington. Uh, the county has done a really excellent job in meeting the pollutant reduction loadings that are required by the Uh, total maximum daily load program in it's uh, in the county's MS4 permit but the challenges there will continue to grow um, uh, you know almost exponentially in the next uh, permit cycle and that's going to be tough to meet Uh, the DES staff is up to it but it will require uh, continued efforts on their part and your part to make sure we have the the funding necessary to do that I think the board made what can be described as a courageous decision to endorse the aggressive recommendation that the county staff made about investing in, in this area. And we just hope that, uh, that, that that courage will continue as we move forward. Um, the, we also added a, a notion of looking for ways uh, for looking for creative solutions to deal with uh, stormwater uh, uh, challenges, uh, such as the possibility of repurposing uh, street space for stormwater purposes. Um, and that was Jillian's notion, so if you have any questions about that, I'll defer, <laughs> I'll defer, defer to her. I've already said more than I know about it. Um, regarding the household solid waste rate, uh, I think uh, Greg Emanuel made all the right points about uh, the issues that are involved here. Uh, the fact is completely aware that the... Um, uh, the total tax base for people who live in Arlington County is favorable as compared to surrounding jurisdictions. Uh, we're aware that, we, that Arlington residents have had the benefit of a really great contract on uh, household solid waste for the last several years. And uh, a plaudits are due to the staff for that. Uh, we're similarly aware that the real estate tax rate isn't going up this year but real estate values are, and most uh, homeowners are going to see increases in the real estate taxes that they pay. Um, the household solid waste rate is by definition regressive, uh, and uh, it's gonna you know, hurt more for those in the lower income strata. So we simply encourage the board and the county staff to be mindful of that, and to consider whether there might be ways to ameliorate the effects of that for people uh, least able to afford it. Uh, I'm a realist and I'm not um, significantly hopeful that the the rate is likely to change but um, uh, whether it changes or not we think it would benefit um, uh, Arlington County government if the if the DES were to engage in an active campaign of education to explain the the beneficial uh, uh, household solid waste rates that we've enjoyed for the past several years uh, and uh, why it's going up uh, and what that's going to do for us because I think they really do have a good story to tell. Um, I'm not gonna repeat what Jillian just said about performance measures uh, because we we feel the same way about the non-transit portion of the performance measures. The one thing that I will echo is simply the the, the thoughts about uh, customer service. Um, there may be a more customer service-oriented department in Arlington County government than DES, but I'm not aware of it. Uh, and so measuring customer satisfaction seems to me would be a really important uh, part of um, uh, uh, showing uh, how well the department is meeting its uh, overarching mission. Uh, there's a lot of really good stuff, uh, uh, tremendous information that shows how hard they work and the good job that they're doing uh, in those um, in those performance measures, but we think that customer service could be a valuable uh, element of it. Uh, And finally, I'll say that um, uh, we raised last night a discussion about uh, whether there is additional information about the percentage and type of household solid waste collected at the curb as recycling materials that actually ends up being incinerated rather than recycled because it's contaminated in some way Uh, that information uh, could be useful to the department and certainly to those of us less familiar with the program in determining whether it's uh, best uh, best developed to try to to create to try to hit our goal of recycling as much as we possibly can and i'll say in a lot of these instances where we don't uh, where we suggest we don't have information it doesn't mean that des doesn't have it we met with them on friday we wrote our reports over the weekend uh we met with fact last night to endorse it and now we're talking to you so Mm -hmm. there's no suggestion that they haven't been great in sharing information with us they are every time and we appreciate that
0: Thank you, Mr. Rob Chair Robertson, and you uh, outline what is always the problem with these work sessions that come so early in the budget year. It doesn't give you very much time. so we appreciate your your Herculean efforts to actually provide this very, very pinpoint um, and thoughtful guidance to us. so why don't we have a little conversation at this point with members of the board on anything that's been presented thus far or raised by our advisory commissions before we move to the other funds we'll start off with ms crystal All
2: Right. so i have um two buckets of questions transportation and non-transportation or transit and non-transit but maybe to start with a couple of more straightforward ones um with regard to the uh, parking meters Uh, you know to Mr. Emanuel that the rates were last raised in 2019, which is often uh, when you tell us when rates were last raised is a precursor to letting us know that rates are going to be raised in the proposed budget, but I I don't think they are, right? Okay, great. Just wanted to clarify. Um, uh, I am thinking a lot about this question of education, which I think uh, Chair Robertson made a good point about regarding the solid waste rate, and it does occur to me that one of the best points of education we have with close to 900 community members has been that rock and recycle program, uh, which is not a lot of cost savings proposed. I wanted to ask just as we think about that, um, is there any uh, uh, sort of human capital FTE uh, um, savings realized by eliminating that program or um, it really is just about the sort of materials, et cetera?
4: It's just about the event and and we spend some money on materials and some money on overtime. At last year's event, I think we had 852 attendees, uh, including a lot of kids.
2: Okay, great. I am thinking a lot about wanting to do that public education, and particularly um, the facts point about, uh, you know, knowing how much of our stream is being uh, incinerated rather than recycled, I think educating the community about how to um, do food scraps, for example, as we've talked about, but also how to um, participate in that commingled recycled program or where to recycle glass, et cetera. There's sort of an ongoing need for education there. So, um, appreciate that. I will yield and we can come back on transit. Thank sure. you.
0: Thank you. Why don't we go with Mr. Diferranti and then work our way down. Thank you Mr. Chair Um, I
8: I have in lieu of questions I have a couple of just short comments that I want to say first a big thank you on the comparison in solid waste to Fairfax and and Alexandria that helps me a lot second um, it'll be covered later in the presentation but a big thank you on the electric vehicle analysis it's mostly in the latter slides but um, the the 19 specific exceptions as you probably can guess, always reassures me a ton that we're doing what we can. And so a big thank you there. Um, I want to. F- I will follow up. These are budget, but they're also a little programmatic. I'll uh, thank you to Ms. Wang and the the work on um, adjusting time schedules on Carlin Springs. I just want to follow up to see about one additional route, and I'll ask for a meeting on that. Um, on parking, this may be a question. Um, I was fairly clearly reminded of the questions with respect to parking uh, and uh, the equitability of enforcement uh, with respect to neighborhoods. And So I'd love to just see if I could get a conversation with the right staff people. I know we're doing the performance parking, but I really just feel like a responsibility there. Um, And uh, I guess credit, uh, I also, I won't have as many questions, but a big thank you both to Joan and to Chris. Both of you are chairs who tactfully and deft- deftly articulated the bus question. I think it's not for this meeting, but it, I, I, I'm hoping that I can do a two-by-two two or a briefing on that. Um, the question, I really i will have a couple questions in the climate area, um, and that is uh, about, we mentioned the 2050 goal, um, and you know there's a lot of history to that but wanted to kind of understand a little bit the 2035 goal and um, you know the 96 percent point that that Miss um, McIntyre made um, was there intentionality about 2050 as opposed to 2035 I know 2050 is a higher and sort of trans, transcendent goal but that 96% in the 2035 is um you know i always feel like if i'm gonna long-term goals without interim benchmarks are challenging so is there any intentionality or thinking in the presentation to that piece or just it's a nod to the future um goals that that des has i think that's for you mr Emanuel, but it could be for um the manager or it could be for the air team
4: well i'll try to summarize by saying the roadmap kind of lays that out, and how we're going to get to those goals and lays out some of the milestones, and I don't I don't know if we have that in our backup slides on the roadmap, but that, that's that's probably the best place to look um, to know those interim milestones and some of our near-term actions, some of the midterm actions, and some of the longer-term actions. Great.
9: Um,
8: I'll take another look. I must confess the roadmap has not been a particular focus, um, and I'll yield. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Okay, thank you. Ms. Garvey. Thank
10: you. Um, I have a, a number. I'll try to. I think some of them are really quick, though. Um, I was. It was interesting. The water system breaks. That marks. You have the number of water system breaks and a note saying that you know all of the things it includes, and it varies from year to year, breaking at basic, uh based on temperature fluctuations. Which I totally get that. Um, looking at the numbers, it doesn't look to me like it's fluctuating all that much. Are those in thousands? Is that the? Is that why it doesn't look so like the, a low of thirty three point three and a high of. 35 i think i mean it looks pretty consistent that that it's it's page 849 if that helps and i'm just wondering because that doesn't look like variation to me it looks actually really consistent
4: it's on it's It's, uh it is consistent on one angle because of the age of the system and it says a system's age but we do see sometimes time you know like in the cold we get hit with a lot at one time. Ah,
10: uh, so it's when it happens. Got when it. when it happens. Okay, all right, got it. And got then that's
4: it. when our crews get really stretched. Yes, yes, yes. And then, uh, but we do have a fallback um, and some really cold snaps where we pull in contractors to help out. Yep, thank you. But even then we get stretched in our resources.
10: Yeah, no, thank you. I, I totally get it. Um, and I do appreciate uh, somewhere in here I marked down the, the, the warning just reminding us how old some of these systems are and that it's a, it's a major issue. People think it's because we've got more and more people coming here, but it's actually just because it's really old systems. And even if nobody else came, we'd That's have correct. trouble. Um, and on the water, just just checking my understanding, on the water treatment plant, where are f- um, I think you said, we have 45% capacity left. So we're at 55 percent capacity people are always concerned about do, do our systems have capacity and i keep reassuring them that i think it does and i'm, I'm hearing so we all really have only kind of used about half of our water treatment capacity
11: yeah, that's correct we've with the 40 mgd plant we're, we're well under it, within the 21 22 mgd and we could speak more of that i just want to point out libby on your other uh question mm-hmm. it doesn't appear on page 849 that it varies but I would note in, in 2015, that was at 55.9 <laughs> breaks per 100. And okay. that's one reason it looks normalized. But we do have winters when the, when the climate is severe and we have multiple oh, changes. I understand. Yeah, no, I it, it
10: has yeah. varied over it the past. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. And, and actually, just a, sh- a shout out to everybody who's out in this horrible weather helping people get water. It's pretty amazing what the crews do. Thank you. Um, Okay, all right. and I, I did have more.
0: Yeah, I think we all have more. So why don't we oh, just wait. give everybody okay. a, yep. a little bucket before a little bucket. That's getting to a round two, Mr. Karantonis?
12: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you for the uh, very comprehensive. Always a very. This is the department of everything under the sun, right? So, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's it's kind of. Difficult to have a nice comprehensive conversation about everything you guys do. Uh, And thank you for doing that and doing that all in all in a very satisfactory way. A couple of things uh, uh, on on transportation. Just a statement. Three bikes are very few for a pilot. Sorry. Uh, The whole point of the bikes is to be available and people see that they have an option. So maybe we want to increase that to maybe 10. Uh, And it's not such a I know, I, I hope it's not such a great uh, expense to do that. I really encourage you to, to, to look at this. The second thing on the scooters, um, great that we can. Just say, just
10: say yes. Yes. <laughs> yes.
13: Okay,
12: let's talk about 15. Good <laughs>
10: so,
5: mentoring.
12: Um, uh, the, the second thing is on scooters, it's great to be able to pinpoint them on an app. Uh, problem is that a lot of people don't have the app, etc. So, or don't know that. So maybe we could ask our operators to put a sticker on the bike that if, mm. if you find this bike in the wrong place, then you know, here is how how we can do that. I hope they will be amenable to the idea. And on uh, on 16M on Columbia Pike, so we asked, we we. I mean, a county has applied for a grant to to make this. Headways uh, on on peak times at six six minutes. Uh, we are in good hope that we will get that grant right. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how fast will no be so when is sixteen M going to be implemented at the twelve minutes headway and then how fast are we going to graduate to six minutes? The again it will depend on
4: two again the, the schedule that um, when we were here last year. Mm-hmm. The uh, WMATA told us it was going to be like March, mm-hmm. and then they, they changed their game plan for, I won't go into all those details, but now it's going to be June, somewhere late June, early, early July for the implementation. But it will again depend on them having drivers and how many drivers they have mm-hmm. to get to the six minute headways. Uh, uh, and we have you know, obviously funding options uh, to, to, to do that. Okay. The MBTC funding amount, we'll, we'll first see where that lands and then there may be a, right. a policy decision. I, and, yeah, and I, I would government. even ask
14: members of the board who sit on NVTC to offer thoughts on that because I, I do agree that if that money doesn't arrive, then I think that's a point of decision for us in budget adoption.
2: I'd be happy to weigh in if that would be helpful, having been sure. very involved in this. So first, I wanted to just um, thank our staff to took a fair bit of negotiation directly with Walmart, including our board members representing Virginia, that that 16M will be starting no later than July 1. I look forward to being on that first ride. Um, I will say, I think uh, my understanding with NVTC See first time um, in a number of years with regard to that program um, with the use of the Transform sixty six dollars um, is significantly oversubscribed. I think there are probably projects t- totally about double the amount of funding available. And so I, my understanding is that the the staff at MVTC has gone to the. Different- to encourage them to envision what the projects may look like um, with smaller budgets Um, and so I do think that there is going to be an opportunity for us to potentially look um, to to meet that with local monies that that may be necessary um, or envision um, something similar I think as Mr. Emanuel was talking about um, six-minute headways during peak times for example and and 12 and off-peak so we'll have some decision-making I don't I would love to say that I am optimistic, and I think uh, all of us who sit on NVTC will, will certainly be champions for Arlington's projects, but realistically, uh, I think we and other jurisdictions are going to be invited to um, think how we can get those projects funded, if not at the full scale.
12: Thank you. Um, just, right. Just wanting to underscore the fact that there is a logistical problem with finding the drivers for this kind of service, and there is a... This is a huge uh, increment in availability, and actually, this is a real improvement in in level of service. The moment uh, that every six every six months every six minutes a bus, uh, you know, goes along the pike, uh, people will have a completely different. Uh, sense of availability of service. This is really critical to get it right and when we get the money, knock on wood and cross fingers, uh, we, it would be really a shame to, to stumble upon the logistical problem of finding the drivers for that and having to postpone yet another time on this. Uh, talking about level of service, so I saw on your, your slides, I don't remember one, but one of the riderships that is increasing is actually students on art. Right? And, and not coincidentally, in my opinion, uh, Art 75, which serves uh, uh, South Carlin Springs, and specifically the, uh, the, the Kenmore Middle School, is the one with the least uh, um, attrition of, of uh, ridership. So there, I just guess that there is a correlation between making art service available to students uh, and be very intentional about that, and actually, Art Service working uh, uh, with, with more writers right now. So uh, uh, I think that this is an important insight that I, get, I got from your presentation today, and I want to follow up with that.
0: All right, we'll I have you yield the floor for now and get back to everybody for uh, another round in just a moment. Uh, a couple of easy, quick questions before a bigger one. So, um, Mr. Emanuel, in the director's office, there's a, a 34% increase for around $800,000, despite only an additional half FTE. Can you just describe what that that is?
4: That's just a, a budgeting dynamic where um, the one-time bonus. I think, for budgeting purposes, uh up to look to Emily here. I think we just put it all in the director's office. That's where it landed. It's just.
0: Oh, so the bonus, that time bonus 2,000 for, for everybody is all in your office? You gonna share the bonus? Yeah, and, we, Trust me, and, and we, have, <laughs> we have safeguards that that will be used for the intended purpose, okay, good.
4: Trust me, it's
0: over 400 employees.
10: Everybody knows who <laughs> has it now.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Good, good question. Well, <laughs> if, I didn't, if I didn't bring it up, somebody else in the community would. Um, and as it relates to uh, scooters, You know, it's my understanding that that as part of the agreement right now, they all have to contain their contact information that that people can use in the event that they report a problem to speak to Mr. Carantonis's point. But I have a different concern. Um, Having been one who has reported a uh, misparked scooter directly to the company, Mm -hmm. um, as per what I'm supposed to do, I was. Uh, surprised and saddened that in each case it took over a week for it to be moved. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, are we in any way um, compiling, tracking data to see whether or not companies are actually compliant with the agreement that they have with Arlington County? And secondarily, are we asking them for any information on whether or not that uh, varies by neighborhood or varies by sector? Uh, in both cases where I reported, it was a residential neighborhood. I wonder if their rates of uh, moving vehicles is different in other residential neighborhoods or in commercial areas specifically. You know, I think the more that we can uh, hold them accountable for providing this information, the better we can manage what has become an issue for some people. And uh, for my last one before I yield the four, when I get into the household solid waste rate a bit, Uh, Thank you, Mr. Robertson, for really talking about the regressivity of it and, you know, how contextually you can understand it, but it's still not an insignificant deal. And I was just having a little bit of trouble making the numbers add up. So I understand that we're shifting um, $123,000 in current glass recycling. Costs that I guess were absorbed from the general fund into the household solid, solid waste rate. The narrative says that the contractual increase amounts to about 2.1 million dollars. Together, that's about 2.2 million dollars. But the revenue increase um, that we're collecting is about 3.3 million. So just help me understand the math on all that. <laughs>
15: Um, well, it's full cost recovery. So an additional, in, in addition to all the contractual increases, we also have personnel charges and heavy equipment, fuel. So um, all those charge and uh, leaf collection are all loaded into the cost of that rate. Um, so does that answer your question?
0: So I guess the increase in revenue is about two-thirds contract and then one-third other stuff?
15: Correct. There's, um, and uh, this slide hopefully breaks down all the pieces that go into that hundred dollar increase. We've tried to break it down by the various buckets. So a dollar and eighty two cents for salaries and benefits, um, and then the big drivers you can see are the disposal costs and the MRF contract.
0: All right. So I guess. All right. So which which parts of these are the rate that are are the contractual increases? So salaries, obviously.
15: Most of the contractual increases are included in the disposal costs, the blue box, and the green box for the MRF. There's oh, the some small okay. um, contractual non-personnel costs in the green box, or excuse me, in the red box as well. But they're much less significant.
0: So I, I think that's why I'm going to follow up later, but that's why I think I'm having a hard time with math. Here, clearly, um, the preponderance of the increase in costs are coming.
15: There's there's also um, a revenue component that is offsetting some of the contractual increases. So we do get some revenue from our recyclable materials, which okay. I think is probably confusing the expenditure increase in the budget versus these amounts, which are shown on a net basis.
0: All right, I'll dig into it. Thank you. Move to round two, and Ms. Crystal.
2: Great, thank you. Um, A couple of transit questions. Could you, uh, I think slide 29 mentioned um, about a million dollars added for ART 41 and 45 expansion, but in one time, I think we're pulling that up now, uh, and yet it says, but it's um, to maintain existing service, but yet increases art frequency. So the idea is that we're picking up with ART 41 and 45 some current us. I guess the sentence says increases art frequency to maintain existing service levels so explain that to me.
4: I guess we could have worded that better it's to (laughs) it's to maintain the existing service letter levels currently provided by WMATA's 16 G.
2: 16 G okay and I'm sorry so so this 16 G what are the headways on the 16 G?
4: I don't know that. Hello Ms. Rivers.
16: So uh, so the 16, hold it. Okay. So the 16G and the 16H run at 15 minute frequencies, and so we would have to increase the 41 and 45 to match those. Uh, uh, The the ART 41, 45 are running at 20 minutes uh, in some sense, and so we're just building up those frequencies to match them.
2: So, but the 16M is running it more. Look, I'm not sad about this. This sounds like more bus service to me, which I'm thrilled about. But the 16M is going to run it more frequent headways than the 16G.
16: It is. It is. So, we're not necessarily matching the 16M. The idea is that we're trying to move people out of the neighborhoods to get to Columbia Pike and uh, so they can take advantage of the more frequent. service great so it's
2: it's sort of to maintain the match between our local service and metro correct so it's better than maintaining existing service it is better it's improving our local to match the 16m absolutely fantastic i'm really excited to hear that as a 41 rider i don't necessarily connect to the 16m but i will benefit from that nonetheless so thrilled to see that and thank you um uh, here's a much broader question, and I think one that maybe uh, would probably be better answered in a follow-up, but I am, you know, intrigued by, by the fact recommendation about working with APS to eliminate school bus routes uh, for older students entirely. I know that um, part of the reason we were a little slower than impatient board members might have liked to implement that student's ride-free pilot was that there was a desire to kind of set it up in a way that we could collect a lot of data about Routes and, and which students from which schools were um, riding. So, I would be interested to know just to what I know it's still new, but what we've learned from the pilot to date about routes and times. And maybe let me phrase it this way How far are we away from being able to set as a goal for this collaboration reducing school bus routes? Right now, I know we've sort of treated it as a pilot, everyone benefits, let's gather some data. You know, are we? still at the beginning of our journey and have a lot more data to gather, or can we see within sight, based on what we're learning, that it actually might be possible within a certain time horizon to, to start, um, you know, achieving that dream of providing service via art instead of school bus. Again, very much for follow-up, and unless anybody's got it, something off the cuff, but thank you.
4: I can give you just a preliminary anecdotal results of conversation that we had with schools on this particular question, anticipating it. Um, Uh, Renee Harper and others on her team, we meet with them every two weeks to talk all things together. And we asked this question, and anecdotally they have dropped some of their um, total numbers of school buses. They were up or above 200 for a moment, I think they're down like at 182 or something right now. But it's not necessarily a direct result of that. There's a lot of other operational management things we're doing, so we can't isolate out how much if any that was uh, due to our providing service or them making other adjustments within their operations but they certainly do appreciate uh, what we're offering and I think some cases it's just an added benefit to um, student riders. Uh, anecdotally we're hearing that, you know, that they really appreciate uh, the ability to get the late bus you know after their school activity that wasn't there before going where they wanted to go and then art provides that uh, connection. And of course, then if we are successful with the WMATA, uh, then that may also provide that connection for others. So I don't think we really will know the full impact until we uh, get the Wamada service to the students as well.
2: Very helpful. Okay, thank you.
8: Mr.
4: DeFerranti Thank you, Mr. Chair.
8: Um, uh, Ms. Burgess, I just wanna, uh, I've got as gently as Twitter can ever remind you about things you've said, you'll work on the bus stops and sidewalks. Yesterday, I got a reminder along those lines, so I want to follow up in a in a way offline, but also trying to keep it within the budget context. So, uh, thank you for that for mentioning that. Um, my question is is on um, is on the the uh, community energy plan two hundred thousand. Um, and the one million um, wanted to just—I I didn't quite catch a sense of what the one-time two hundred thousand is for—and I didn't know if if one of you could speak to the um, the two hundred thirty-five thousand that is left in the in the one million. Both we want to be thoughtful in how we're investing, um, but the science continues to grind us with respect to climate. So. Maybe the first, and then the, the overall one million in, in climate w- work second. If you all could speak to that, and I don't know whether that's Mr. Moon, who or Mr. Emanuel, um, or um, Demetra, or whoever.
11: With the the two hundred thousand. I think uh, we you know the thing we've done with them is with Air is to ask what they needed for studies and other things. So that two hundred thousand supplements current current initiatives in AIR to make sure we have enough for actions inside with the decarbonization tool, with everything else we're doing, with studies. I think part of that is to make sure we leverage the opportunities with the grants that you've heard earlier and some other initiatives inside of the AIR budget to make sure we don't slow down, as you've heard. So we can provide other details, uh, and Demetri McBride obviously will have a, a more more details to provide um, in that regard. But I think we're the opportunity there is to make sure we're, we're keeping them whole. And then I would just say for the remaining money that we did not allocate, the 235 and the CAF, it was intentional to leave some additional funding uh, for two things, some some additional opportunities in FY24 and for some uh, additional input from the new climate policy officer as they come on board and just to leave some space there um, for some additional needs in the future. That was pretty much Great. thoughtless.
8: Thank you. Uh, um- I'll also perhaps want to follow up. I know the budget includes the number of um, EV charging stations, and um, mindful that there's some um, communities that have wanted to engage, put their own condominium money, and and if there's any leveraging there, I'd be excited about that as well.
11: So. It, yeah, the only thing I would say that's a, um, we the, the that's really for our own public facing charging that we've got in the. The metrics that you see in the air budget. Um, so I think that's a new metric this year that we've actually put in. Um, but I would say for the, the most uh, exciting opportunity we've seen there is the new Dominion Energy programs that um, Air has um, discussing, both Stephen Burr and um, um, demetra McBride, with their new uh, program for EV charging, where they will actually, for the first time, help um, offset some of the what's what's normally been a headwind for communities and multifamily. Um, helping to install those infrastructure costs and offsetting some of that. Um, we think that's our, that could be a real game changer. And I think um, the air team will be bringing forth more information um, in, the, in the coming fiscal year on that, or if not sooner.
8: Great. Well, thanks. And uh, thanks, Ms. McBride and your team for all you've been doing. I know that um, I, I occasionally try to follow up with conversations that get fairly into the weeds. I'll avoid that here, but I will want to do that at some point. As, as appropriate, thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Vice Chair Garvey.
10: Thank you. I think I heard you say in the presentation that now they're not only requiring the iRide cards from students, but they can use a student ID. They don't have to have the iRide card. That's wonderful because it's I think got held up by not getting the cards out, and I understand we want to keep. So I'm just checking my understanding. That's great. I know it won't work for Wamada. Um, I join um, Ms. Crystal in being concerned about eliminating Rock and Recycle. Um, it's not it's, it's not only sort of educating people, which is great. I think people get excited about it. Kids, and I think one of the issues we have, if, if, let me know if I'm wrong, I think we're having trouble finding people to work in DES kinds of jobs, right? I mean, I think they're pretty excited. There's a lot of cool stuff that goes on. People don't understand or appreciate it. Well, you've got, a, you've got all these kids coming, getting excited. So why don't you do some job recruitment? Why, I mean, I just think there's a lot there. Also DES, which I've said before, I think suffers from the fact that so much of what you do is underground, and it concerns things people don't want to think about, and they're just getting rid of. So, and they don't think about it unless it's not working, right? So people just throw away the trash. As long as it gets picked up, they forget about it. You know, toilets, water flushes, everything goes away. We don't even think about it. We can turn on the tap. We can we don't even think about it. And then we get upset and wondering why we're spending so much money. So anyway, this just seems rock and recycle seems like an incredible public relations um, uh, opportunity, and I'd like you to see it actually maybe even bump it up a little bit. So, and it's only 20,000, right? So anyway, I'm just going to join join her in that. And then I would be interested in, and maybe I missed it in here in the performance measures, how do we do recycling? So uh, we get some money from recycling. How much is it? How much is it over the years? And that's been fascinating. So for a while, nobody would take paper. And then we got cardboard boxes delivered everywhere, and suddenly paper went up in value. And then plastic bags, but things go up and down. And that sort of information is fascinating, and maybe maybe we have that. You could, if you've got it handy, you could send it to me later. If you don't have it, I think in the future it would be good to know. And it would be cool for our taxpayers. I mean, for people, you can put this in the rock and recycle, right? Everybody's trying to, to do the right thing. They need to get um, you know, positive reinforcement. Look at how much we made, because the good citizens of Arlington have been recycling. All right, I'm off my um. My, my, my uh, little diatribe here and uh, done. Thank you. I gonna mean, really appreciate what you guys do. Just sound off about it more. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And before I recognize Mr. Tonis, I remind all colleagues that whenever you know, since the budget has now been turned over to us, the decisions about issues like rock and recycling are not with them. They are with us. And provided that you find the appropriate offset, it's
10: in, right here on my list. Twenty-eight. Hey, we can do it. the
0: words, digital underground. You can do what you okay. like. All right, Mr. Carantonas.
12: Thank you. Um, I have a question on um, air, if this is a oh, budget of air, uh, if this is still inside the scope here. So, uh, uh, in, in fiscal year 22, uh, expense for air actual was 1.4 million. We adopted 2.2, million, and now we're down to 2.079. Can you elaborate a little bit? I, I need to understand that.
11: Yeah, I, I think uh, Tyler Tyler may be able to help, but I think what happened with that going down is there was one-time dollars that were attributable to the air budget. So those, those were for one-time. So now we've incrementally reduced that um, back down because those one-time studies and initiatives were funded. So I know it looks like that we've reduced that in the
12: budget. but Yeah, I want just uh, to make, uh, to understand what, uh what, what, how this is structured? And
15: um, la- I will add on, um, last year we had some one-time money for, historically would have been more PAYGO energy initiatives. Mm-hmm. So it has to be looked at sort of holistically on the PAYGO side, where we have had increased funding this year for energy initiatives. The more operating one-time money last year that was removed, we're replacing most of that with the additional 200000 Um, So although the operating budget looks like it's lowering, we're replacing the one-time money and right-sizing it to the amount of money that AIR thinks they need to achieve the studies and initiatives they have set out for FY24, and we were funded on the PAYGO side for those more traditional PAYGO things like energy investments in our facilities.
12: Okay, talking of which, so the, uh... the deployment of EV charging station in public facilities is under the facilities management, right? Right. That's correct. Um, So do we have, and and there is an an aggressive number, and I understand that we are building in equal, almost in equal uh, numbers, the... uh, uh, the infrastructure that is needed for our evs the sedans uh, you know whatever is chargeable right now including the, the 15 bikes as we said before uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so uh, so how do we how do we uh, go about the publicly available ones and if there is uh, my question is specifically, if by funding the, the, the ones that uh, serve Arlington County, there are several in this building, for example, um, how do we make them dual use? Uh, so is it possible or is it at all in our concepts to make them dual use? So, for example, during the day will be for county EVs or certain hours will be, or if they are not occupied by county EVs, they will be available to the public or or something like that.
11: Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question, but currently those spaces are actually allocated and reserved for county parking. Yes. So right now we're, we're not they're pe- physically. They're physically yeah. separated. So we're we're not doing that. But the cli- I think the climate action fund slide that we, we had presented earlier um, kind of speaks to what we're trying to do with the courthouse plaza a lot and then um, central library and FY 24 and community centers in the future for the public facing. But currently with the with the spaces we have at the mezzanine level here and with other other spaces, they're not, and they're they're actually, the rate is charged differently through the charger, so we currently don't have that ability, but it's something we can potentially see in the future, but right now it's it's not really the the approach.
12: Okay, thank you, I yield back. All right,
0: before we go to any round three, if necessary, question about the Uh, info on recycling and diversion rates on pages 449 and 450 with the uh with the supporting measures so looking at what we're able to divert from arlington county agencies which we're estimating at around 50 percent yet an overall rate on the preceding page of 53 percent am i are, are those both measuring the same things and do i take away that arlington county is lagging behind our entire community and driving down our overall diversion rate
11: um i think uh the two different the the 50 the 53 percent is the county overall recycling as you've indicated but it's a blend of what we do with county facilities and the curbside recycling and other things all added so we could we could provide more detail of what that rolls up from um, but i think the there is different for facilities. Like, we don't offer some of the things in, in facilities that we offer curbside also. So I think, um, you know, we could, Mr. Grabowski, and we could provide some additional detail on that. But uh, we, we don't.
0: Looks like Mr. Grabowski is ready to pounce. Yes, <laughs> They are
14: different numbers. Um, Actually, the residential community performance is the best and then county facilities and then basically the commercial multifamily below that and then last probably is APS, but I probably shouldn't say that. Um, (laughs) But again, it is two different numbers. So again, the overall rate is countywide, and then the 50% is what county facilities. No, but they're
0: measuring the same thing, so we are dragging down the overall average.
11: But I would say there were some things that aren't offered in the facility side. Correct, so again, our highest performance
14: is the the residential because we have the broadest number of programs. We do food scraps collection, we do e-waste collection curbside, we do a whole bunch of things. We also have organics um, broadly for leaf collection, other things, even though we do incorporate in the county rate. What parks does from organics perspective, there's just much more opportunities in a residential and also they're just bigger from a 32,000, you know, customer base. So their rate is overall higher because there's a lot of energy there. County facilities does lag behind, but again, their second place relative to the overall community and relative to the schools. All right, thank you. And so speaking of that, which is the follow up question,
0: how are we doing in figuring out solutions for multifamily properties to participate in the food scraps collection program?
14: We The zero waste plan, you'll see that in 2024 with a vote that you'll be doing in the June of 2024. A large part of what the zero waste plan to allow us get to the 90% diversion really is focusing on organics, specifically food scraps, broadly throughout the community. That's the only way we get there. And also, just overall, doing a better job recycling to an earlier question about what we actually burn. Some of that material actually is recyclable. Um, we do waste audits for the residential community quarterly to understand what goes in the trash that could be in some other recycling stream. And again, we'll be using that information to formulate an uh, an education program broadly for the community, multifamily residential, just to do a better job recycling overall, but also to incorporate additional programs that allow us to get to that 90% diversion rate. So we're working on it. Is that a fair takeaway? Okay, thank you.
0: All right, Uh, any for round three before we hear from the rest of the funds, Ms. Garvey
10: just me a um, couple of questions on accessibility and transit um, how are we doing on bus stops making them accessible I saw the numbers but what's the overall percentage I remember we it was taking a long time to get us so most of our bus stops were gonna be accessible how are we doing
11: yeah I think uh, in, the, in the capital uh, plan you'll see bus stops I think it's on page um, anyway we're about a thousand and five we've done about five hundred We're doing 30 stops a a year um but lynn's joined me so she can add
10: okay so the total number of stops are go ahead yes the total number of
16: stops are a little over a thousand um we're about halfway there at this point um at this we've really gotten all of the low-hanging fruit we've gotten the easier things done we're now reaching a phase where we we need to get um easements um, utility relocations, so it's going to slow down just a little bit. We're programmed to do about 30 per year, but we're hoping that we can get more done. Um, uh, we've determined that they're going to take some things that, that need to get in hand, like trying to get easements um, in, in, a, in a, an increased way.
10: Um, but that's that's where we are right now. Okay. And do we think at all, I mean, I think we know Maybe we don't the location of folks who might most need an accessible bus stop. Do we then kind of focus on those? You know, if you're only doing 30 a year, it would seem to me that you might want to want to do that. And I see Ms. Wong here. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, and wait.
3: Yeah, just want to also sort of elaborate on the number. Uh, We are getting to the locations where we really seriously looking for other consideration. because you know, dig once and try to improve. uh, If there are vision zero safety improvement, if there are other things that can be combined with the transit, uh station or transit stop. We work very closely among the bureaus to try to make those projects worthwhile. Uh, in the meantime, when you add components to that, that does add complexity, and sometimes you suffer a little bit on the pace. OK,
10: thank you. Yeah, 30 per year for 500 sounds like a long time, but, but thank you. And then another question, could, could you talk a little bit, and maybe Ms. Wong, this is for you, this, the STAR program. Where is that at? Because I know there have been some other contract, there have been some controversies. What's going on with that program right now?
16: Uh, I can give you an update on that. So we pro- uh, provided a proposed proposals last year with regards to some changes that we'd like to make on the writer, for the writer Guide and usage of the system. Um, To make the system more efficient and uh, our next move was to go out for public engagement about the proposals We are transit services manager um, Position is just recently filled and so we were literally at that point before we were going to go out to the public So we anticipate that coming up in the next couple of months
10: Okay, well, that's good because I know a lot of folks are concerned that more efficient means actually worse service and that's what, there's a big concern there, I understand that. So thank you, thanks for the update. Mm -hmm. That's it.
0: All right, thank you all and we're now ready for consideration of the other four funds on our agenda today, Stormwater Utilities Auto and Boston
4: Garage, take it away. I will endeavor to proceed through this at an accelerated pace. All right, so starting with Stormwater. Uh, these uh, shows our recently completed work like Donaldson Run Trip B and others underway, including Balsam Pond, Formal Run Dredging, Cardinal School Vault. Slide, or, okay, good. Yep. We're now working with a handful of homeowners on a voluntary basis to acquire, how, to acquire low-lying properties by negotiated purchase and sale agreements. And this uh, image shows one of our first ones, uh, demolition is complete, and we also worked with DPR to try something new, a microforest and uh, this is in a neighborhood downhill from Tuckahoe Park. We're proposing a sanitary district tax, static at 1.7 cents. This will be the last year of the tax before we transition to the utility fee beginning with the first billing in May 24. The second MS4 permit was issued during calendar year 21, and so now we're working to reach that 40% TMBL target by 2026, and then the big one at the end. And we should complete the risk assessment and management plan, or ramp, toward the end of this calendar year. So overall, the budget increases by 617,000, or 4%. 583 of that is, uh, increase is anticipated debt service, supporting our capital program. Uh, O&M increases, one and a half million, driven primarily by personnel increases, overhead charges, and budget adds. Uh, much of the contractual, uh, Contractual budget increases, though, were able to be mitigated through budget reallocations and taking some cuts. Um, On the ad side, uh, we're including some one-time and ongoing funding, as well as three FTEs. We're adding an infrastructure engineer plan reviewer, and then two stormwater maintenance staff are being transferred from the utility fund. We're also adding $115,000 of one-time funding for grant writing and administration to pursue opportunities for a capital program. Uh, 146 for flow monitoring and rain gauges and $100,000 increase in funding for DPR's tree planting program for two reasons. Increasing the number of trees from 820 to 900 annually, as well as inflationary contract increases. So that brings us a total uh, going from stormwater to tree planting to 388,000 annually. Another important context is how we fit in with our regional neighbors. Uh, and you can see we're currently second from the bottom, regionally shown on the green line there. Uh, only Prince William is less, they have a very different development pattern. Fairfax City just adopted a utility model for 23. Um, and only at the moment, uh, Arlington and Fairfax are on a tax rate basis, the others are user fees. So the green, the green star on this chart uh, shows what the equivalent utility fee would be if magically right now the utility fund was under uh, utility fee and uh, you know show the burden shift to those properties because single family homes have more impervious relatively speaking a better way to look at that uh, that was projecting forward for 25 and 26 when we implement our other neighbors for purposes of this chart are just conservatively shown flat Um, our typical homeowner again on the green line we'll see that one-time jump um, next year and then the rate and slope will vary by the program needs, depending on uh, debt service and, of course, the pace of execution of our capital program, including the voluntary acquisition program, where the timing is a little uncertain. Uh, and then for anyone listening today who may have missed it, uh, we had a work session here on the 31st of January to discuss uh, the recommended fee structure, credit program, and implementation schedule for the fee uh, that's shown on the flowchart wrapping around the slide on the bottom. We'll transition to a utility fee beginning in calendar year 24, so we've advertised a resolution on the Stormwater Utility and Credit Program for adoption in April. That will include adoption of the credit program practices and credit amounts, so owners can begin to implement the credit actions and then apply on the first of November of this year. They can find out everything they need to know on our Stormwater Utility Project page, uh, to how that's gonna work. And then the first bill for calendar year 24 will go to property owners in May of 24.
12: Take take a drink of water.
4: (laughs) I always listen to my manager. All right, let's keep on rolling. All right, any questions on stormwater?
0: I'm sure there will be. Or perhaps not. No,
10: we had that work session. Yeah. We had that
0: we, we, discu- we have discussed this uh, quite a lot. You've given an appropriate summary. I think as a general comment, I think we appreciate the um, <laughs> level of creativity and the detail in getting us thus far. Uh, don't take the lack of questions as being a lack of interest. You know we are intensely interested. Um, but yeah, we did that just a few, couple of yes, weeks ago, right? Do. Yeah, exactly. Yes, All
4: right. It does. <laughs> All right, moving on to the Utilities Fund. Here's a nice snapshot of the Utility Fund's scope of infrastructure and selected o 1st I want to highlight some of the most strategic things happening in our utility space. Uh, thanks to the great efforts of our regional partners, including the ICPRB and Arlington's Mark Nidlily, um, and an organized congressional effort, uh, we can take initial steps to protect our access to safe and plentiful drinking water, specifically The Water Resources Development Act of 2022 authorized a study of secondary drinking water source for the National Capital Region, as well as providing important access to financing for the aqueduct. Uh, We're working hard to increase our resilience and with Fairfax Water's help, recently completed a 16 inch, 4 million gallons per day interconnect with Fairfax Water. Uh, The meter is shown on the left. Uh, And then from here, we will start up our next move to a preliminary scoping of another large diameter interconnection with Fairfax, which would provide us more. Uh, sorry. We're also underway at the Arlington Regen Program with the plant, and recently completed preliminary projects including an $8 million project to replace our bar screens. That's shown in the picture on the right. In the operational space, uh, we have a couple of initiatives to refurbish and revamp our water metering infrastructure and technology. Uh, to improve accuracy and customer service, more granular and timely access to consumption data in the future. And then finally, you may have heard about PFAS compounds, also known as forever chemicals, because they are in con- common consumer products everywhere from toothpaste to sunscreen to cookware and stain resistant clothing. So we're closely monitoring any new regulations that may impact our water system and, of course, the plant. So overall, the proposed budget increases by 1.9 million or 2%. Those increases are driven by debt service, increasing uh, 600,000. And O&M, where the increase is net, 2.7 million, which is 2 million for personnel increases, uh, 300,000 for water purchase, 600,000 for overhead charges, and then inflationary increases for chemicals at the plant, another 800,000 water meters, 300,000 other contracts. For those of you with great public math uh, and listening, that was about a $4 million increase, but we're gonna mitigate that through cuts and reallocations I'll go through on the next slide. And then we've also got the 540 uh, for our transfers to the auto fund for EV upgrades and heavy equipment inflationary costs. So this slide shows the major strategies we use to mitigate those rate increases. Some of the bigger ones relate to our capital program where we plan to use more fund balance uh, than we had previously planned. And uh, based on our program execution delays we're seeing in our supply chain with our contractors. We also decided to defer issuing bonds for one year based on the current timing of the uh, execution of the McMillan Clearwell project at the aqueduct. I talked about that last year. Again, the Maplewood Solar Farm is generating those rebates, uh, which also then benefits the utility fund uh, since uh, the plant is the largest electricity user. And then that enables us to offset most of the non-personal increases at the plant related to the chemicals and the biosolids hauling. Plus, we again sharpened our pencils on chargebacks to capital and other funds to make sure we're taking appropriate credit for time spent on the non-utilities areas. And then we made a budgetary adjustment to move maintenance staff from the utilities fund to stormwater budget, I just talked about in the other section. Um, Overall, we made a number of cuts and reallocations across the fund to realign our resources with needs, including eliminating those 23 one-time expenses. We are proposing additional funding in three targeted areas shown here. Um, In the customer service area, we're proposing adding one customer service rep at the call center to help us mitigate increasing call wait times for customers and to enhance the customer experience. And to uh, fax comments on metrics, this is a perfect example where we have great data and we take action in the budget uh, to improve that customer experience. We're also doing a version upgrade for the billing information system uh, to enhance security. Uh, Because utilities is part of the uh, E-wide, county-wide EV conversion, Uh, this year it includes four replacement vehicles, uh, water-sewer streets, streets, two vans, two pickups, more on that in a few slides when we get to the auto funds. And at the plant, we are also adding back a staff member at the warehouse. uh, We had transferred uh, that slot uh, over to a need in TENO, which was a good move, but uh, we couldn't do without that additional body. Uh, A quick look at our proposed revenue and the fee changes. Um, They're on board reports for the board's consideration. The rates are proposed to increase comprising a 2% revenue increase. That equates to an average household increase of about $26 per year or 3.5% for that median mythical 48,000 gallon user. Um, For commercial and multifamily, it's about a uh, a 2% annual impact. We're also proposing to increase meter installation charges as well as infrastructure availability fees. They are both based on the recommendations from the 2021 rate study where we do that incrementally. So this provides the context for our proposed rates and our general regional competitiveness. Again, we're shown in the green line here where they, even with the proposed changes, we still remain among the most economical utilities in the national capital region. Moving to the auto fund, unless there are any questions on utilities. Why do keep going and right.
0: we'll see if we'll collect them at the
4: end. So year to year, we move around with the auto fund, depending on what's due for replacement, how much it costs. We are continuing to experience that equi- significant inflation pressure for heavy equipment. So for example, a medium dump truck to, conf- to fight snow. In 2020, 2012, it cost about 100000 Now it's $175,000. Uh, <laughs> Our equipment bureau is working really aggressively with uh, the help of staff and the facilities team and the air team uh, to meet that board's policy direction to replace vehicles wherever feasible with electric. To accomplish that, uh, uh, we're budgeting an additional 247000 to pay for that incremental cost. So the graph on the right shows our projected progress over 23 and 24 on converting our non-public safety fleet to electric. So. Assuming our FY24 orders arrive, we should be around 66 electric sedans in our non-public safety fleet, representing 58% of the total 113 in that category. Um, Over time, we're seeing in the market SUVs, vans, and light trucks will create more opportunities. At some point, we might want to adjust our metric accordingly, just saying all light vehicles. That's something we're looking at. If you do look at our fleet as a whole, um, including public safety, our current EV count stands at 31. We've got two pickup trucks on order. Um, and public safety has been great. They've also jumped on. on they've got a uh, total of nine vehicles where it works for them um, between fire and PD. Um, and once all of our 23 and 24 orders, we will have total beyond just sedans uh, projected 116 EVs uh, in the light fleet. And of course, that third battery electric uh, school bus showed up last week and we'll get that in service. Um, We also looked at budget savings in the auto fund and identified two vacancies that we believe we can do without. We're proposing freezing a night shift supervisor in a welding position Uh, that may need to be converted to other activities uh, and skills as the fleet evolves. So part of the board's direction was to report back to the board on what we're not able to replace with electric and 23, 39 were not ordered ZVs. Mostly that's due to heavy equipment uh, not being available in electric options. We did have one van in DPR where the electric mileage uh, constraints were an issue due to the field trips and events traveled outside the county, so that didn't work for them. In the small pickup realm, the Ford Lightning has shown great promise and also uncertainty at the moment. Cruise on into the Boston garage which operates as two separate financial entities, floors one through seven and then the eighth floor. That uh, post-pandemic telework dynamic on the floors one to seven continues, which impacts the revenues uh, as the parking and daily parkers are down. We did see a pretty big rebound in revenues in 22 with a 60% increase. Uh, This year we're kind of tracking that and tapering that down to only a 20% increase. Uh, Good news, but still a slower recovery than we anticipated. So given that our budget of revenue is still lower than our pre-pandemic revenue of $4.2 million, we may need to use the Economic Stability Reserve to fund the garage operations. On the eighth floor, we're in a much better position. It's a different dynamic. The revenue was not as dramatic because the ice plate maintained those operations. It's just a different dynamic on the eighth floor. All right. All um, right. At the Boston garage, we are budgeting for the replacement of our payment equipment in the garage funded from garage revenues, that's the transaction equipment, the gate computers, the pay-on-foot kiosk. The equipment has begun to fail and the replacement parts are no longer available. In fact, one lane in the garage is currently closed. There was a car fire. The damage to the equipment can't be repaired. We're actually getting underway with that all as soon as possible. We're also in the transition uh, from one contractor to the next. Uh, The transition period is starting now. And by the end of April, uh, SP Plus will be replacing ABM. So, uh, nearing the end here. I'm going to try to wrap it all up into a future consideration. It's kind of going to go back to the whole department. Uh, a lot of dynamics playing out that will affect future budgets and service delivery for new projects and maintenance. We continue to experience some long lead times for equipment, particularly that which is manufactured. Uh, and the inflation is pretty acute in sometimes random areas, somewhat unpredictable. Um, as we pursue our CEP roadmap and our aggressive carbon neutrality goals, so are many other people, both public and private. So uh, the manufacture and delivery and part stream and the maintenance contracts for things like charging equipment aren't really where we want them to be yet uh, or predictable. Uh, the ongoing telework with lower traffic volumes, I'll say two things, the, you know, in, in the lower peaks, it creates an opportunity for us in some ways because we can, can Kind of transformed the right-of-way but then it's challenges for transit ridership at the same time so we'll know more about metro's uh, better bus and we'll see how it affects our art service going forward like last year we are still having certain skill sets are very hard to fill and those vacancies affect maintenance execution rate the board for example authorized um, uh, an ev uh, person for facilities management last year It took us almost a year to get that person on board. They just recently came on board. Um, Vehicle and driver safety technology is another fascinating area. It continues to evolve in amazing ways that will make us even safer on the road uh, for our own drivers and other drivers. Uh, But we have to kind of bring our drivers along with that. (laughs) Uh, Not everyone likes their vehicle telling them what they're doing wrong. Um, uh, And you know whether it's rolling through a stop sign or not signaling a lane change, uh, but then again, you know, keeping the vehicle safe and keeping your CDL license is really important. So our drivers might appreciate knowing that they're starting to drift across the lane. So those are some of the dynamics. Um, on a positive note, we really I think ed- integrated equity analysis pretty well in our program delivery. You'll see more for Christine when we report on the Vision Zero. And uh, of course, we continue to have more work to do to figure out exactly how we're working things internally within our team know uh, within their needs uh, so we'll continue to evolve there that wraps it up back to questions
0: thank you and you know why don't we uh, perhaps leave that future consideration slide up there it might spur some thinking or some thoughts but we also just went through the utilities fund the um, auto, fund. auto fund thank you and the Boston garage mr. Deferrante to start thank you mr. chair I saved up seven qu- No, no no Uh, questions
8: I I did want to a couple of questions actually in the water area Um, I think fiscal year 22 uh, saw a little tick up in system breaks from 45 to 59 and um, I wondered if you could talk about the background Uh, you know in the course there's been a lot of discussion of infrastructure we had the chain bridge work that was done i think it's two years ago now um, but it's on page A49, and uh, i know it off the top you can follow up later i just um, it's hard to prove a negative and folks often are worried about our water system and proving that that we're lining and relining and using the technologies is key but i just wondered on this specific point if you had any context for this light uptick
11: yeah, I, I think we'll follow up on that specific year, but I would say this is for um, um, sanitary sewer overflows in our system, and we have a pretty aggressive uh, lining program. So I think uh, that number varies over um, year to year based on you know, high flows in the system, rainfall events, and, and multiple factors. But these, these are just monitored, and so it did, did tick up. I'm not sure um, on the 22 what the actual tick up reasons were, but it varies over time. Um, but we, we have invested, the thing that we're doing to prevent those um, sewer overflows is lining our sewer system, which we've made great headway on at this point. So I think we'll have probably more to more to provide you in that as part of the PAYGO uh, presentation, maybe with uh, utilities. Great, thank you.
0: Ms. Crystal.
2: So uh, just one quick question. I was thinking this might show up in the auto fund. Mr. Manuel, I thought I heard you mention um, that there was a, the, the plan is to decrease our non-public safety fleet by 15 vehicles, is that right? And is that, would that show up in the auto fund? And if so, is there not cost savings associated with that?
4: Well, so for example, we cut the uh, three vehicles in, uh, you know, here over Court Square West. So that does show up, but the math gets uh, a little more complicated <laughs> uh when you start talking about conversions of, of vehicles um again the fleet that's publicly available, you know, readily available to us uh from the from the manufacturers continues to kind of drift away from sedans to you know if you've tried to run a car lately but they have like small medium Extra large SUVs, a little well, right. Yeah. You know, we're in that small, right. compact SUV space, and that just—it's what's replacing. So that's why I say we, I'm, we might re-categorize this. We're trying to figure that out as we shift away from sedans to small SUVs, and when they're available for uh, EVs. So, Greg, you were actually spot on with the
17: statement about the sedan yeah. uh, transition. Manufacturers have stopped making sedans. So, like. Um, Ford Focus used to be our bread and butter—a $16,000 sedan—and uh, a lot of us grew up with sedans, right, four doors and a roofline. Some of us had station wagons, right? Well, now they talk about SUVs. So, but what is an SUV? It's just a sport utility vehicle. So, as the manufacturers produce fewer and fewer sedans, so decreases our supply. That's really all it is.
2: Uh, sorry. So, I think what I'm struggling to figure out is—is is this um is this a policy choice that we're making or programmatic choice we're making to actually reduce our fleet because we're finding people can, uh, county employees can do their work without needing a vehicle? Or is this sort of a reflection of where the market's going and we're hoping to add back those 15 at some point?
17: So, so what I can purchase as a fleet manager is what's available on the market. Right. And as uh, consumers act on their desire to buy SUVs and manufacturers make fewer sedans, I can't buy sedans. And so as we replace with sedans, the number changes to look like we're actually reducing the sedans. It's just a question of having to buy SUVs. And
2: Sorry. SUVs, <laughs> I think I get what's going on in the market and why sedans aren't available. Right. What I'm, what I, So is the point that we are not replacing 15 sedans with sedans and we're instead replacing them with SUVs, or we're reducing the overall size of the fleet?
17: it's a combination of both okay so uh, a reduction of I think it was roughly five or six and 23 yeah. and then a conversion of whatever the delta of that plus and the minus is to the to the 10 uh, it was about 15 that converted over to SUVs it also happens with uh, vans and light trucks as well
2: okay so, uh, got it I think I'm getting that so I that makes sense and I think I, you know i Certainly, we're all experiencing with that with that dynamic on the market. We I
17: picked through that chart several times and, like, how is this going
2: to it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I will say the challenge uh, with SUVs is not just the cost, but that we know they are more dangerous on the roads, right? So I think there are, we are really challenged in terms of our Vision Zero goals, not only as a consumer of these, right, but as a system that is trying to plan for more of these on the road. So I, I was glad to see the the comment about the introduction of e-bikes. Appreciate Mr. Carantonis's suggestion that there might be more opportunities. And so if there are more things that we can be doing tactically to encourage, you know, we've talked about VMT, reductions in VMT being really important for not only our energy goals and our um, Vision zero, but also our vision zero goals. So, so hopefully that's something that we can be thinking about doing, especially because I totally. I mean, I, I think even as a layperson, I can see that change in the market. Yeah. And so, if there are ways that we can avoid being forced by the market uh, to to put our folks in, in less safe vehicles, um, or at least less safe for pedestrians and cyclists, uh, that that would be great. So, thank you. I think I'm tracking now, and I appreciate the, the input you. or the insight. <laughs>
0: But just to be clear, the sedans that you focus for the motor pool, which I avail myself of from time to time, <laughs> these are based on the these are based on the sedan wheelbases. These are small form factor SUVs. These are exactly yeah. So yes. many people, well, many people feel them feel that they're safer to drive in order to operate. Yep. And as it be, people on the street, <laughs> there there have been studies that have been done. And not that we need <laughs> to get into this here, but as Fewer people have sedans in their own personal lives. Putting them into sedans um, for random points in times does not actually lead to increased safety. But that's a larger conversation for another day. <laughs> I wanted to piggyback on Ms. Crystal's question to figure out whether or not this number could future be influenced in the future uh, based on remote work issues and dynamics. With fewer people actually being here, would that not drive down a reduction in the demand for vehicles that are part of the motor pool?
4: Um, I'll try to be succinct here on an annual basis Chris works with each departmental um, vehicle rep and challenges them on their mileage and whether or not they really need that vehicle or if they can go you know reduce down we provide annual stats I I push my colleagues as much as I can while maintaining good relationships with them. So I assure you that we uh, have those conversations on an ongoing rather aggressive basis to get people to drop vehicles or to pick up an older one or to hold back, you know, because well, the, the greenest option is to get rid of the vehicle. Uh, sometimes the next greenest option is to hold off on the purchase and just see if you're really still gonna need it. You know, it's like, okay, so you're not comfortable now, but maybe next year just hang on to this one because your mileage is low. So we have ongoing and aggressive discussions on that. The only thing I would add with that is this is not the first year we've reduced the motor pool.
11: It's constantly, be, you know, we, we work with the, the facilities maintenance bureau staff. And so just the introduction of what we're talking about with the e-bikes, if that has a uh, has an impact over the next fiscal year, we could come back with some additional recommendations. But it's, it's something we're constantly monitoring at this point. Yeah. Ms. Garvey. Oh.
10: Yeah, thank you. Um, I don't have any questions on the Stormwater Management Fund, but just want to recognize how far we've come since that storm in 2019. I mean, I think was a, we were talking, this is all we were talking about for a while. And we've made a huge lift. And now we're kind of on, I don't know if it's cruise control. There's probably an, a water metaphor with boats or something. But anyway, thank you for the work, because I think that's, it's really important. It's good to see it continuing forward, because we all know we're going to get those storms again. I had a question about resiliency. Um, I think we've got the 32 million gall- gallons of water storage in water tanks. Um, and then we're connecting up with Fairfax. So 32 million gallons, if we like, suddenly had to only use the water we had in storage for some odd reason, how long would that last, Arlington?
11: Yeah, it's, it's probably a little over a day, a day and a half. We have, that's our average daily is in the 21, 22, so I'd say it's it a, between a day, day and a half uh, for our storage. So, and the health department requirement specifies that kind of storage volume for a community yeah, with a water system a, it's so a good idea it's not, yeah. it's
10: not a it's, it's not a week it's you have l- relatively little time right so we're connecting with fairfax so that if we end up with something more than we could get water from fairfax and how much do we think we could get from there and is that a two-way thing so that if fairfax has trouble they would mm-hmm. get water from us i'm guessing yeah
4: we think with this new interconnect it would be roughly about 15 to 20 percent of our typical demand that's why i mentioned very briefly I'm wanting a lot more than that <laughs> so I can sleep better at night and for, uh, you know, for the community to sleep better at night. So we will, um, we're just kind of an initial phase of discussion there on an alignment study and a scaling, got a great relationship with the Fairfax water uh, team and we will be bringing hopefully more to the board in the future.
10: Yep, that'd be great. It'd be a fun community exercise sometime to say, okay, let's pretend there's an emergency. Everybody uses as little water as possible for a day, and let's see how we do, it'll be interesting. Thank you. Um, I have another question, question on water. Are we measuring PFAS in our water at this point?
4: We could have a whole work fe- session on PFAS, and we don't have time for that. Well, yeah. But it, the, I'll, I'll try to be succinct. The ability of us to measure it is questionable. The, the EPA's put out health advisory limits that are about, um, that we can't even measure. Okay, cool.
10: So maybe so some, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I may get a briefing yeah. on this later, not now, yeah. but yeah. No, it's that, it's that, it's,
4: yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting space where we're exploring the, the boundaries of technology and science here. Thank you. Um,
10: yeah, CPC's got like a four-hour program coming up, and I don't think I can give four hours, but I might ask you guys for a 45-minute briefing. Um, and then seeing as um, our chair is busy, I'll ask one more question. Um, yeah. It's my understanding we're working on capturing methane gas from the water treatment plant to be used into, is, is this the case? I didn't see anything about it here with my, so is that happening and is that costing us money as we try to work on that?
11: For the RNG usage? Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. The, the, um, Mike Collins advised us this week that the, uh, the, the solids master plant, the plant, has now hit, hit the streets, um, so we're underway with the uh, design, trying to secure a, uh, a design-build type contract for that to move forward. But I, I would say that element of providing the gas and designing that and implementing it is has just started with that phase of the project. Um, and then equally, uh, Lynn Rivers is looking to secure that um, RNG contract for the transit fleet that we also discussed recently. So yeah. those two elements are working kind of concurrently. But a big milestone that um, the, uh, the Water pollution Control Plan is uh, embarked on with the getting that um, procurement on the street. Oh, that,
10: that's great. So there'll be a budget impact like next, in, there's not a big budget impact right now because we're just. But, s- well, in it's, it's
11: already the budget. Um, I think there's $170 million for that project already budgeted. Uh, I didn't see
10: it. OK, thank you. So, it's, it's a CIP. CIP. Yeah, OK, thank you. Yes, it would be in the CIP, not in the,
12: but right. Yeah. Thank you for the reminder. Appreciate it. That's it.
0: OK, thank you. Mr. Karantanis.
12: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, I, I have to say great news on the Fairfax Interconnect. I. Just remember, as a resident of Gravity 2, uh, that <laughs> that uh, that it takes like what 15 minutes or less less than 15 minutes to for a, for a that the pressure drops if there is a major interruption of the supply from the La Carlea reservoir. Right. So I hope this is, uh, and and I know that's far less time when we talk about Roslin or other mm-hmm. places. So um, that's that's good news. Oh, back on uh, on the on the sedan fleet. I mean, there are two things. First of all, the conversion brings also savings on maintenance, and the availability of the fleet is better. One thing that DVs uh, uh, accomplish is this: they are more available. They don't have to be. I mean, their maintenance is shorter, and or at least it's it's said that it's shorter. Maybe there is there are other insights. So that. Uh, Adds an additional efficiency uh, parameter. So, do we account for th- this kind of savings? And to Ms. Uh, Crystal's remarks, EVs unfortunately are heavier vehicles, even if they are small. <laughs> They're way heavier than their equivalents in in, in uh, the other world. Uh, so, uh, this is what this is how I interpret the the higher safety standards and uh, implementing, you know, using modern technologies to make uh, driving safer. So I guess that in our specs when we buy uh, these vehicles, we include these specifically because these are vehicles that if something happens is far more, uh, you know, impactful. Um, An additional wrinkle to that. we we are spending a lot of money on EV infrastructure to to charge our EVs. One part that makes EVs more available is to be able to charge them fast. So not only with trickle charging, which we can obviously manage very well, uh, but also you know fast charging. And I've seen that you are including two safety vehicles in the in the new conversion fleet. So I find it find this fascinating, interesting that we can. Uh, making roads and safety vehicle conversion. Mm-hmm. So, if you can comment on that.
11: Well, the only thing I'll comment, I would the first thing I think uh, the automotive fleet, I mean, I think it's given, it weren't, they weren't the two positions that were frozen as part of the automotive fund um, weren't for mechanics necessarily, but there was a note in there on page 903 that we're going to mm-hmm. continue to monitor it, but I think it did give additional comfort or, or, or you know, in the area of EVs that we think that with the addition of the fleet that that may incrementally reduce. But I I think we're going to have to monitor what that looks like in the future as we try to understand and and train. It's a, as we've talked to transit properties, it's a whole retraining of the workforce. If we get a higher penetration of rate in our fleet, as we do that, it's going to change what our mechanics have to do, so appreciate that. And I think uh, Chris Allison, who joined us earlier, is tracking that and well aware of that consideration.
12: Yeah I mean I, I'm also aware that uh, for for a certain time we will have both maintenance yeah. tasks yes. and I'm worried about that. So because this is this is a lot we have we haven't transitioned yet so we have to maintain both right. Okay.
0: All right so a couple uh, long-term questions for me and then back to Mr. DiParanti. So as you think about the future and and we're mindful of the big jump in the household solid waste rate this year, and Mr. Robertson's um, useful reminder about the re- regressivity of such a tax. Are we exploring other uh, mechanisms, maybe thinking about collecting for household solid waste, like unit, unit-based unit pricing that I know is done in some European and Asian countries? Because as it exists now, um, there is absolutely no incentive for anyone to do the right thing other than their own conscience and desiring to. Um, you know be ecologically forward-thinking there is no actual price incentive since all of the costs are spared equal or spread around equally
11: yeah um, I, I think one, one thing I would just say unit-based uh, actually weighing some communities have looked at weighing um, the solid waste as it gets collected and building on that that's something um, the zero waste plan is considering a lot of different considerations on what on what we're gonna have to do to achieve the you know long term goal of, of in a zero waste community, um, I, I would say that that is um, creates its own technology and system challenges, and um, I don't think we're actively pursuing that right now, um, um, Mr. Dorsey. But I, I think we would perhaps consider that in the future as part of the zero waste plan, and, and whatever it takes to get get that um, you know consideration done to incentivize individuals to potentially recycle more to get to that goal to reduce waste um, in that. And shifting from cart to cart is, is one of the things we want to incentivize. So whether it's unit-based unit charging per the solid waste that's put in that cart or other incentives that will st- get us there in a different fashion. So I don't think that's an active tool, but we could follow up with you um,
0: on that. Sure, thank you. Um, Mr. DeFerranti and then Ms. Garvey, and then maybe we'll be ready to conclude. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair, and mostly I
8: wanted to to just see if I understood the Compensation proposal, notwithstanding the, the you know the two thousand spread equally, not just in the director's <laughs>
4: office,
8: um, but it's a four percent. The proposal is a four percent plus, four and a half plus the one time. Um, and uh, I know that you will conclude with this, Mr. Chair. But thinking about the two hundred forty-five people in water in that in that fund and, and the eight hundred people, um, we we don't always. We just need to thank because uh, if it's broken, um, that impacts all of us. And the leaders in the room are, are huge, but the people doing the work, uh, I know we all want to thank you.
5: Yeah, Just,
10: just one question. Um, I love that picture of the soon-to-be solar array on top of all the buses, shading them, protecting them, producing energy. And I've often thought... I mean, could this be a model? Because many in my lifetime, I've been in really hot parking lots in the baking sun and looking for shade somewhere. I mean, the Pentagon parking lot, you could probably cover that. That's not us, but there are lots of parking lots like right here. Is that sort of, are we sort of heading in that direction? This is just sort of a general question because I got you guys here. Um, But that always just seemed like a beautiful solution to a couple of problems. I don't know. Maybe it's harder than it works. We'll find out if it works. I guess that's where we are okay i'll answer the question for you thank you <laughs> so maybe, with that, maybe someday it trades with us uh-huh.
0: so with that i uh, very apt that mr karen has kicked us off by talking about this being the department of everything under the sun for for many arlingtonians or for all arlingtonians your department touches them in ways that are critical for their satisfaction with the community and and for their view of what is a high functioning municipality looks like. So uh, unfortunately, uh, it means that when uh, you hear from them, it is typically because something has broken down, which creates not just uh, an urgency in remediating the issue, but dealing with someone who is really, really at a high point of stress. So I love the investments in customer service to facilitate and help that. And just overall, I know we ask a lot of you um, actually I'm not going to apologize for that I mean it's it's important <laughs> it's 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 big and and we need uh, the department of everything under the sun to to deliver in all of the ways that are going to make our community better but we thank you so much for for sharing these these plans and also how you're really operationalizing this within the upcoming budget so thank you all
4: you're certainly welcome we thank the board's support and we have an amazing team out there all right and with that we are adjourned thank you colleagues
18: Virginia is proudly produced by the Virginia Farm Bureau Federation. Since 1926, Farm Bureau has been working to preserve Virginia farms and our rural heritage. Visit our website at vafb.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Virginia, a show about Virginia agriculture and the people who produce the wonderful local products we enjoy, brought to you by the Virginia Farm Bureau. Farmland preservation programs are helping to keep Virginia farms in business. We have some tips to keep your Lenten rose plants healthy. An estate program to encourage replanting trees turns 50 this year. Home will always be
13: Virginia Between the Blue Ridge and Chesapeake Bay Atlantic to
1: Appalachia Welcome back to Real Virginia, everyone. We're coming to you this week from Powhatan County, a community where development pressures are high. Losing farmland to new housing or other development is an ongoing concern for Virginia farmers. Burke-Muller reports this year, five localities in the Commonwealth will receive funding to help keep their farmland in agriculture.
9: In Virginia, The Farmland Preservation Fund and Local Purchase of Development Rights programs are an example of local and state governments working toward the same purpose, to keep farmland available for farming. Governor Glenn Youngkin has announced that for fiscal year 2023, five localities will receive a total of $875,000 in grants to help local landowners set aside their land for agriculture.
3: The Virginia Farmland Preservation Fund is a fund established by the General Assembly to help promote farmland preservation across the Commonwealth, and it's operated through the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Office of Farmland Preservation.
9: The five localities selected this year are Clark, Fauquier, and Stafford counties, plus the cities of Chesapeake and Virginia Beach. These are matching funds, for example, Fauquier County has put up $175,000 to purchase development rights from landowners in fiscal 2023. The state government matches that $175,000 with a grant from the Farmland Preservation Fund. Fauquier County has the largest purchase of development rights program in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Farmers have been using it to keep some or all of their property in agriculture forever. Ken Smith operates cool lawn farms in southern Fauquier County and has used the PDR program to keep land and agriculture in his fast growing community.
19: I use it as a tool to buy more farmland. So, what money I acquire from the purchase and development right gives me down payment to buy the next farm and put that land in easement to be able to buy another farm. So, it's a transitional type situation. We've grown from 278 acres to now over 1200 acres by buying additional farmland surrounding us and these are all contiguous properties.
9: In addition to buying land, Smith has also been able to purchase capital improvements. When completed, this facility will be able to milk over 300 cows per hour. He's also expanded his dairy business into a creamery, Moo through which his daughter
19: operates. We've been in business 11 years now serving almost a half million customers a year at our several locations, one in Remington, Virginia, one in Charlottesville, one at Lake Anna, one at Winchester, one at Hillsboro, and one at Warrington, Virginia.
9: Virginia Farm Bureau has supported the Office of Farmland Preservation and has advocated for additional funding for the program.
3: We work with localities and county farm bureaus who are interested in establishing these programs to help them understand the possible benefits to both localities and rural landowners.
9: Farmers like Smith also see lower real estate tax rates once they sell their development rights. But for him, what's most critical is the ability to pass on what he's worked hard for all his life.
19: The most important thing is to leave a legacy and to protect um, other family members who might not be interested in carrying on the legacy or holding the, the property out of development and then they might want the most value out of it. So what you've done is you've made the decision for your property because you own it. And you should have the right to make that decision for yourself, how you want your legacy to carry forth in future generations. So you could put a stake in the ground and say, this is what it's gonna be. And you're gonna see green grass or open fields and farming rest of your life and your children's lives.
9: Since the program's inception in 2007, the Office of Farmland Preservation has helped provide nearly $13.2 million dollars in state matching funds to permanently protect nearly 15,000 acres across the Commonwealth. In Fauquier County, I'm Burke Moeller reporting.
18: Virginia's urban crescent follows I-95 down to Richmond and southeast along I-64 to Hampton Roads. Farm and forest land all along those major interstates are prime development prospects. Over the decades, thousands of acres have been converted to housing and businesses as the state's economy and population grew. Similar growth patterns are occurring along I-81 in western Virginia and around any urban center. In 1960, Virginia had 13.5 million acres of farmland by 2003 that had dropped to 8.3 million acres. Each community and property owner has the right to decide how and whether to try to preserve nearby farmland.
13: I'm Mark Viet, coming up on in the garden, I'm going to talk about lenten rose. So stay with us.
18: We are stronger together, especially at this difficult time. For over 90 years, we've watched our membership grow, and we're honored to be part of such a special community. Thank you to the farmers who provide for us every day. Virginia Farm Bureau is proud to serve our members, their families, and to give back to our local communities. That's the Farm Bureau way.
1: One of the earliest garden plants that you can enjoy in late winter and early spring is the Lenten Rose. Mark Viette has some tips on how to take good care of these beauties in the garden.
13: Lenten rose is a long blooming perennial that blooms in February, March, maybe even into April, depending on the variety. They're long lived plants. They'll grow in full sun, bright shade, they're hardy. They'll even reseed in the garden, and they come in a beautiful array of flowers. And if you look here, we've got pinks, we have whites. Other places of the garden, we have almost reds and purples, all different shades of color. The good thing about Lenten rose, it is a, a good deer-resistant plant. Now, if deer are starving, they may feed on it, but. Deer do not normally feed on Lenten roses. We have dailies around these in other areas, and the deer are feeding on the dailies, but they do not touch the Lenten rose. You can divide them. The best time to dig and divide is gonna be in the spring or even in August. Now, when they produce seedlings, the seed has to go through two winter time periods. It's a dormancy factor that you have to have two cold periods for the seeds to germinate. And the seeds usually germinate around the base of the plant. If you look right here, you can see lots of seedlings. So let me dig one up. So the seed fell to the ground two years ago. And the second winter has occurred. Uh, We'll pull out the weeds here, but if you look, here are the little seedlings, and there's lots of them here. Good time to transplant them is going to be probably in August, but I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and they're going to look great. By then, they're going to be a you know, maybe 10 times bigger, and you can pull them out, or you could dig them with a little soil just like this, and then transplant them in the garden. That's a great way to propagate your own hellebores. Another way, these are two that I dug, you're gonna go ahead and just shake the soil, or you could plant these on their own, but I wanna make a few more and you're gonna come in here and you can just pull them apart. If you need a knife, that's great, but this is a wonderful plant that you can use in the garden. If you look at these here, or many of the Helleborus we have, they have different shaped leaves. This is a rather unusual one called Multifidus, and it has really nice dissected leaves. So you can find many types of, of uh, hellebores, and some are pure white. Some of you may even have what is known as the Christmas Rose, and that's finished blooming. That's one that blooms for Christmas. Now if you go to your store today, you may see crosses with, or hybrids between these unusual varieties. And they're fantastic, but keep in mind, they may cost as much as $35, $40 for a single plant because it's, uh, they have to divide them and it takes a while to do that. I'm Mark Viet, join me next time, In the Garden.
18: For more garden tips, go to inthegardenradio.com.
20: Hi, coming up on Heart of the Home, a healthy chocolate mousse. We hope you'll stay with us.
19: Arkel. She walks into the barn, and she gets milked. Milk's taken from her and put it through a uh, chiller. And that milk's taken from body temperature of a cow, which is about 102 and a half, and dropped to 35 degrees and put straight onto a tractor trailer. And it goes straight to the plant the next day. So most of the milk that's sitting on your store shelves is probably less than 48 hours old. And that's, that's a pretty good testament to how, how efficient we are.
1: February is when we celebrate all things chocolate. Chef Tammy Brawley has a unique dessert for anyone looking to watch their calories from the heart of the home.
20: Hi, I'm Chef Tammy Brawley from The Green Kitchen. Today, I'm going to show you how to make some delicious chocolate mousse operative word here we are making it a healthy chocolate mousse if I didn't tell you what was in it you would never know from the taste so I'm excited to show you this we're gonna start out actually with vegan chocolate chips this is an enjoy life brand it's actually found in the uh, grocery store where chocolate is sold but there is no milk product in this it is vegan so it's great for your friends who can't have such a product we're actually gonna melt about three ounces and the way that we're gonna do that is we're not gonna use the stove We're actually going to use the microwave for this so you want a nice glass bowl put about three ounces of the dark chocolate chips in pop them in the microwave for about 20 second intervals or so until they're completely melted so as you can see we went in for about 30 seconds at that moment i take them out and i'll stir them up with a spoon pop them back in bring them back out stir them again until they're completely melted It's melted quite nicely. And now I want to sweeten it. And we are going to sweeten it with some delicious Highland County Maple Syrup. If you guys have never been to that festival, you're giving yourself um, a disservice. Um, So try that out in March and we're gonna stir in some maple syrup into our chocolate. Just wanna get that nice and combined. And it's gonna wait on the side for a few minutes while we put some other things together here and you might be asking yourself why in the world does she have avocados on her cutting board well, this is going to be the thickener for this um healthy chocolate mousse we're going to split our avocados we want to take our pits out sometimes they're a little tough i don't recommend if you've never done this before that you do it we might have to use a spoon there we go avocado is a fat but it's a good fat we're going to go back to our food processor here or to our food processor you want to scoop out all the avocado we used four if you're only serving two people for dinner or dessert then two avocados to cut the recipe in half is totally fine this probably makes about um i don't know maybe about three cups of pudding or mousse All right, so we have all of our avocado halves in our food processor. We're gonna turn that on. Just gonna get it nice and smooth. You might have to take the lid off. Go in with a spatula just to move it around a little bit. We're gonna come back to that and we're actually going to add three to five, give or take, Tablespoons of cocoa powder. I've got some Dutch process here that I like to use. I like, actually like to turn this off before I add it. I can see the avocados are blending quite nicely here. We're going to go ahead and add, let's add let's, uh, meat in the middle. Let's do four tablespoons. So We've got a heavy Dutch process cocoa here, and then we've got those dark chocolate chips that we're using. You want to get that blended again. Take off the lid, run your spatula through all right we're going to go ahead and add two teaspoons of vanilla extract I'm going to go through the tube on this turn that back on you also want to add about a quarter of a cup of an almond milk it's just going to thin it out a little bit And now for the last bit of the recipe, we're going to add that delicious melted chocolate that's been sweetened with the maple syrup. If you are a dark chocolate fan, you will love this recipe. Most of my friends are dark chocolate fans. Back on the food processor for just a moment, and it's done. I like to use a portion scoop. It makes it a nice, even um, serving size. If you can't get it into the food processor, you can take it off the base, but I usually do pretty well with that. So I'm gonna drop a chunk in. I like to come back and top it with a little bit of confectioner's sugar. So we're gonna sprinkle that right over the top. Nice little color there. And if you'd like, you can let this thicken up in the refrigerator. It would certainly um, help with that, but it's delicious right out of the food processor. I'm Chef Tammy Brawley from the Green Kitchen. Join us next time on Heart of the
1: Home. Recipes from the Heart of the Home can be found on the Virginia Farm Bureau website at vafb.com slash recipes, as well as on Chef Tammy Brawley's website at greenkitchenrichmond.com.
18: Virginia maple syrup is a sweet treat that's produced in early spring every year in the mountains of western Virginia. Tree sap is tapped and collected from maple tree plantations, then boiled down in stainless steel trays in sugar camps to be bottled and sold to visitors and shipped all around the country. The region's premier syrup event is the Highland County Maple Syrup Festival, traditionally held over two weekends each March. But other maple syrup tours are available year-round. In fact, seven sugar camps in the county have their own trail for visitors to follow all year long.
1: The care and cutting of Virginia timber is the third largest industry in the Old Dominion. Norm Hyde reports that's partly thanks to a state program that encourages landowners to replant trees.
18: Virginia's forest products industry generates more than $21 billion and employs more than 108,000 people each year. For decades, many farmers and owners of rural forest land have taken advantage of Virginia's Reforestation of Timberlands program run by the Virginia Department of Forestry. This cost share program with landowners recently turned 50 years old and continues to help the forest industry grow. Tim Adams has stock in Virginia's forest industry across 25 acres of farmland in Charlotte County.
21: You ask my wife, I love these trees. They grow like babies, and when something hurts one, I feel it.
18: His family first planted trees on their Drake's Branch Farm in 1998. Years later, Tim made his own investment in renewing the forest land.
21: I mainly got in it because I wanted land, and a track came available beside my farm, so I bought it. It was old Virginia pine that was gotten old and falling down. So I bought it with the intent of cutting it, which I did, and I replanted this. And I harvested it two years ago. Tim Adams is one of 52,000 rural
18: Virginia landowners who have taken part in what is commonly referred to as the R.T. program.
21: The R.T. stands for Reforestation of Timberlands Program. It's the program that helps reimburse landowners for the expense of planting their land into pine species. It reimburses the landowner about a third of the cost. Just like any other cost, those costs go up every year. And it gets more and more expensive to uh, convert these areas or to replant these areas.
18: Miller Adams is a forester in Charlotte County with the Virginia Department of Forestry. A
21: 1966
18: survey of Virginia forest land found that pine trees were being cut faster than they were being replanted across the state. To encourage landowners to replant pine trees, the General Assembly enacted the RT program in 1970. It's funded by the Virginia Forest Products Tax, which is matched by Virginia's general fund. To date, landowners have reforested more than 2 million acres through the R.T. program, giving a
21: boost to Virginia's third leading industry. It's a win-win not only for the landowner, but for the general public that's going to use the products that come off of these areas. A lot of this timber goes into the pulp and paper market for paper, cardboard, uh, You know, two-by-fours. On average, it takes 15 to 20 years for a
18: landowner to earn a profit from selling their timber, so it's definitely a long-term investment for them. The R.T. program caps projects at 100 acres per year, per landowner. Foresters like Miller can connect them to a planting contractor and help them get the best return on harvesting their acreage.
21: Kind of hard for some people to conceptualize, but our forests are a living thing. And and age certainly plays into that. So we can have times that forests just become in a a state of decline. And at those times, uh, we can look at harvesting that forest for the products that it can produce and then plant our younger trees that can be a future crop. So it's an evolution uh, that's occurring over the landscape. And and then another important thing is these trees have benefits for wildlife and uh, recreation. A lot of our landowners uh, hunt uh, or just may enjoy being outside. Miller says nature will eventually
18: prune old growth forest on its own, but controlling what grows and where offers the best chance
21: of profitability. It also keeps a steady flow of timber for local markets. It really helps get the ball rolling and get these stands established. The best thing to own is land and why not make money while you got it? Landowners like Tim Adams
18: carry the cost of the land over the years through their property taxes and insurance. But through the R.T. program, he and other participants see some financial incentives to keeping trees on the land. The R.T. program offers landowners a partial reimbursement for site preparation, planting, and release cutting, as well as the removal of other trees from pine stands. Miller Adams says there's an application that outlines landowner responsibilities and expectations. You can learn more about the program at dof.virginia.gov. Search for the Reforestation of Timberlands program. In Charlotte County, Virginia, I'm Norm Hyde reporting.
1: We're so glad you could join us this week to celebrate all the bounty Virginia has to offer. From the kitchen, to your home and garden, to our beautiful wide-open spaces, we are proud to say that this is real Virginia. For everyone from the Virginia Farm Bureau, thanks for watching. Make it a great week.
13: Chesapeake Bay
16: and-
19: We know that farmers don't always get a chance to hear from the folks who use their products in their homes and on their tables. So we visited the State Fair of Virginia to get some thoughts from our fairgoers on what it is that you do and how it impacts their lives every day.
21: I just want to say thank you to all the guys. We've got some wonderful farmers in Powhatan. We've got probably the best farmers in the world right here in Virginia. And we want to say thank you. We know it's a tough job, uh, it's, it's not a whole lot of big money rollers. Uh, but we want to thank you and god bless all of you guys
19: i'd be happy to turn around and tell that farmer male or female exactly how appreciative i am for all the hard work they do i can appreciate the ridiculous hours that they have to work and how they're out on the farm for what little return that they get and i want them to know i'd like you to know with how appreciative i am and my family are for everything that we buy local that we try to do as best we possibly can whether it's on the beef or whether it's on the vegetables and things that we have when we grow and I just want from the bottom of my heart say thank you very much for all they do I
13: thank you them very very much because they take a lot of responsibility to feed us thank you to them because they feed us somebody said once that uh, when the humanity ends without food we'll have to look for food in the sea but I also want to say that not only in the sea, we will have to turn to our fields. Thanks God that they are taking this responsibility. I wish them luck and the best blessing from the Lord.
9: We have farmers in our family, and we appreciate what you do every day. Uh, from the milk, the, the, the pork that we use, all the vegetables that we get, we thank you, and keep up, the, keep up what you do. We're, we're there for you. Thank you.
16: Thank you. I want to say thank you for all that you do. I know it's difficult and very tiring, so thank you for having us eat healthy, nutritious food. God bless you.
0: i like to say thank you to all the farmers that put in hard work for the people that go to grocery stores and get common things like milk, eggs. Commonly, we don't really think about the farmers like that when we do those things, but me personally, I like to take appreciation towards them for their hard work and labor they put towards their work. Thank you, farmers.
3: We're thankful for our farmers for giving us all of our food, locally sourced,
2: and taking care of this baby's tummy so he can grow really big. Thank you so much for raising the cows so that I can have milk every day. Thank you, farmers, for giving
15: me corn to eat. We love farm-to-table food and cows. Thank you, farmers. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for Brussels sprouts and raspberries. Those who struggle each and every single day just to make those ends meet, but still continue in this industry, are the true role models for those of us who continue to grow in the agriculture industry, especially those of us in FFA and 4-H. We youth organizations look up to you as you're the leaders of this industry, and we learn and we thank you for all that you do to help continue to
2: support us. Farmers are role models to me because They work so hard to get their job done, their job never ends. It's always at home or at a different location
3: and they are probably the hardest workers in our country. They're role models to me because they have taught me important skills that I can go out and use in the real world and without them I wouldn't have these skills. I wouldn't be able to stand in front of this camera and talk to people with public speaking skills and also how to properly take care of animals and I really look up to and I'm grateful for the farmers in the past who have allowed me these opportunities.
22: I just wanted to thank all of the farmers both in Virginia and across the U.S. for your amazing sacrifices that you make daily. You are the unsung heroes of both the FFA and our nation, and we truly appreciate everything that you do for both our organization and for us as a people.
17: We really appreciate farmers because um, we wouldn't be able to go about our daily lives um, without you and we wouldn't have three meals a day, it would be really hard. And without you providing that. So uh, we like like, uh, to thank you for
21: that.
16: Thank you, farmers. Thank you, farmers. Thank you, farmers. Muchas
21: gracias a los granjeros de Virginia.
3: Thank you, farmers. Say we love you, farmers. We love you, farmers. Thank you, we appreciate everything
5: you do. Thank you for all that you do and all the foods that you give us. Have a good day and keep up the good work.
11: Thank you, farmers, for just the produce and so we can eat fresh and clean and um, so we can stay healthy.
0: Tomatoes, peppers,
19: and strawberries. I going to be a farmer when I grow up. Thank you,
20: farmers.
2: Welcome to tonight's Missing Middle Information Session, focused on housing and housing development and economics. I'm Katie Crystal, I'm the chair of the Arlington County Board, and I am really pleased to get to be the host of the first of these three sessions tonight. These information sessions represent just one of the many ways for residents to engage with information about the Missing Middle Housing Study. As the board, my colleagues and I deliberate potential zoning changes, For more opportunities to learn and to give feedback and to read about how previous input has been incorporated into this study over the past three years, we encourage you to check out the project's webpage, where you can find a lot more. So we know localities around the region, around the country, are exploring how to create more flexibility when it comes to housing choice. And increasingly, states and now even the federal government, led by the Biden Council of Economic Advisers, are starting to call for greater housing production to address historic shortages in the housing market. This means that we have a lot of case studies and some good national experts to learn from. Before we launch into the substance, a word just about where we are in the process of the Missing Middle Housing Study. Following a recommendation from the 2015 Affordable Housing Master Plan to investigate more housing options within single household neighborhoods, the county board requested that the Missing Middle Housing Study be initiated in 2019. The Missing Middle itself is one of six pillars. Together, they form the Housing Arlington Umbrella. Missing middle specifically explores if varying housing types could potentially help address Arlington's limited housing supply choices and range of prices. The missing middle housing study started with extensive research on our regional economic conditions on the history of housing and zoning in Arlington and our existing land use policies. Then. Over the past two years, county staff and partner organizations have sought feedback from neighborhoods, individuals and groups throughout Arlington, starting from a pre-scoping phase zero all the way to phase two over this past summer. The feedback from the community has shaped the scope, the recommendations and the course of the missing middle study. Last year, we specifically asked staff to help identify some of the housing forms that, if allowed in Arlington, could potentially offer alternatives to the five and six and more bedroom single family homes that are being built when older homes are torn down and that sell for prices that are out of reach of most Arlingtonians. So the draft framework offered by staff is intended to offer insights about possibilities, We learned that if we were to expand the types of housing options that could possibly be built in Arlington, the cost of these homes would vary based on their style, their size, their location, where in Arlington they are, and market forces. So now our staff is analyzing potential zoning ordinance amendments. They will be doing that through the fall, and we will learn from their work, from our conversations with you all in listening sessions, and from information sessions like the one we're having tonight as we determine policy decisions in the coming months. So tonight's session is focused on housing development and economics, and it gives us a chance to explore some of the challenges and opportunities associated with our current housing policies and housing market and associated with any potential changes to those. So we are so glad to have some special guests with us to answer the most commonly occurring questions. Why is housing getting more expensive? Why are modestly priced homes being torn down when there's a desire for these kinds of homes? What are other localities doing about this? Um, And what have we, can we learn from them when it comes to zoning reform? What will be the impacts of zoning change on what type of housing gets built and how much it costs? So a lot of good questions to dig into before we launch. And I'm so excited to introduce our panelists and to have them also introduce themselves. We're joined today by Callie Seltzer, who's a principal with HRA Advisors. Miranda Carter, a longtime Arlingtonian, and a local realtor, and Eric Mary Bozik, who's the executive director of the George Mason University Center for Real Estate Entrepreneurship. So I'll ask you all to just take a minute, tell us about yourself and your interest in issues of housing and economics.
22: Callie, do you want to start? Sure, I'm Callie Seltzer, I'm an urban planner. I focus on housing issues, and in particular, housing systems and what isn't working in our cities uh, to get at supply and affordability and create diverse places. And I'm a former resident of Arlington for most of my 20s. <laughs> it's great to
16: hear. Miranda.
23: Hi, I'm Miranda Carter. Um a longtime Arlingtonian, very proud um, to, to live and work in Arlington, um, and as well as I'm a local realtor. But about a dozen years ago, I really got involved with affordable housing, working um, on the board at um, A-Home for people that you know, lives here in Arlington for a while, Arlington homeownership made easy, um, and then transitioned over to public policy, um, and that's at the local and the state level, just trying to uh, affect outcomes for more affordable housing solutions in our area.
24: Right. Hi, I'm, I'm Eric Mary Bojack, I'm the director for the Center for Real Estate Entrepreneurship at Church Mason School of Business. Um, so the this, this center supports uh, real estate education and topics around real estate development through George Mason. Um, I'm also personally interested and in work with various groups and local governments on affordable housing. Um, I'm a commissioner of the Fairfax County Redevelopment and Housing Authority, and I'm also on the board of the Northern Virginia Affordable Housing Alliance.
2: Well, welcome to all three of you and thanks for taking the time to dig into some of our this community's questions About housing and economics and speaking of your questions We are really pleased to have received a number of questions from you all in advance to guide our conversation for our experts But if you're following along at home, we would still love to hear from you So send your questions in real time if you're on the teams You can send those in via the chat or you can call us 571-348-3053. We would love to take your questions for the panel so let's start big picture and a little bit with our status quo, which informs this question of why study alternatives. Talk to us about where you see the housing market in Arlington or maybe the region today and what happens if we don't make any change? What does our future hold?
22: Callie? I think when we look back at the longer history of this place, uh, you guys had great smart growth policies, um, early adopters uh, in the 70s and, uh, you know, made really great progress uh, in terms of growth, and um, in the past few years I think we've um, gotten to a status quo where uh, housing prices are extremely high. Um, people are being pushed out or not able to uh, gain a foothold in homeownership in Arlington, um, which is a very different scenario than 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so that to me is the most uh, salient part of the status quo right now. Yeah.
2: Oh, thanks. Miranda, Does that track with what you see as a realtor?
23: Yes, absolutely. Um... You know, it's, it's so many times I, uh, I start out working with folks right here in Arlington. That's how we meet up. Um, but the the cost of housing in this area just, it's just cost prohibitive and they have to end up moving outside of Arlington just to find something that's more affordable um, for them. And of course, you know, you know I've, I've lived here and we've all seen and tracked how our, our, our housing values have just, you know, almost doubled in the past couple of years, and it doesn't seem to be any end in sight with the housing prices, with the limited supply that we do have right now.
24: Well, I'd like to echo, I think, um, the, the community of Arlington have created a very dynamic place with lots of economic opportunity, and uh, I, think, I think these are questions of success, uh, frankly. Um, Arlington is poised to grow by another 60,000 residents, I think, in the next 20 or so years. Um, all those residents have to be housed Um, thus far I think Arlington's been building a lot of rental housing and not so much opportunities for ownership Um, being a fully built out community and an an older community I guess the question is you know how do we build for those new people coming and what types of houses are we going to offer them and I think that's the crux of the conversation I think the community is having right now
2: absolutely And, you know, when you say we, right, we talk about this collectively. There are a couple of different forces that determine what gets built, where, how much it costs. Um, There's zoning, right? There's regulation. There's also the market, market forces. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, what we have control over as government? We'd love to think we can control what gets built and where, but how um, government policy interacts with market forces.
24: Well, I think from the from the point of view of real estate development, which is you know part of what we teach uh, over at Mason, so the intersection of government policies and the market forces are what provide the business incentives for developers to build what they build. Um, if your public, if your policies, uh, zoning policies, and other policies uh, that you have encourage the building of uh, you know large single family uh, houses that are more profitable for developers. And, and there's a market demand for that, uh, that's what's gonna get built. Um, developers uh, take on risk-adjusted returns, as we call them, they, they view the landscape, and you know, if something is available by right, which is the lowest risk available, and there's a demand for it, then that's what they're gonna respond to. And, and right now, um, I think the, from the reports that I've read from the missing middle study, you know, about 100 or so houses are being torn down every year, majority of which are three-bedroom, 1,500-square-foot older houses. And they're being replaced by new 5,500-square-foot 5, houses that are costing you know, upwards of $2 million. So that's what the market is, re- that's what developers are responding to because of regulation, zoning, as well as the market demand. And I guess the debate is whether we can tweak the regulations to provide other incentives.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to hear, too, from Callie and Miranda, you know, one of the questions we hear a lot is, well, there are plenty of, you know, moderate-income folks who'd like to buy a moderately-sized house. (laughs) What is going on? Why isn't the market providing for that? And I think Eric just described one of our biggest challenges, which is the the, um, replacement of modestly-sized homes with very large ones. Um, The community has talked a lot about, you know, missing middle is maybe one way by getting more flexible in our regulations, providing alternatives. Do you know of any communities that have tried to get more restrictive about what can be built um, and what kind of results have you seen there
22: uh, i think there's now a long history of communities being pretty restrictive um, and the results are, are clear from the data um, and also in communities where we're reversing these policies and, and and deregulating zoning to allow for more diverse opportunities in housing um, restricting it does not solve the affordability problem. It does not solve the supply problem, obviously, um, and there are a lot of people in Arlington that I believe want to and would live in a smaller house, smaller footprint, a little bit less land um, in a comp- in a way that is compatible for your neighborhoods and, and the character of this place. So,
2: yeah. Well, I think um, that's a great question to, to lead into one for Miranda, which is, um, you know, talk to us a little bit about um, uh, what you're hearing from the folks you're working with, the buyers, about what, what they're looking for in terms of housing and uh, who's being served by our market and who isn't.
23: Right. So um, with our current housing um, types that we have here in Arlington, it, it's it's pretty simple of who goes where. The condos that we have here, those are usually, I always sell them to a single person. That's that's who's going to buy a condo. The townhomes and um, duplexes that we have, those are couple or very small uh, children. And then the single family homes are families. Uh, and this is all we have here um, mm-hmm. to choose from. And um, not a lot uh, of it and, um, and just to even piggyback on what you were saying before about if we do nothing or become more restrictive, that's not going to erase the desirability of living in Arlington this is not going to disappear just because you restrict it, that people aren't going to want to live in Arlington and they will pay. And that's going to drive up the prices even more by restricting it. And I think that's counterintuitive to what we're trying to do.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so what do we know then from communities that have tried to get more permissive? One of the things we're all so desperate for in this community is a crystal ball. What happens if we make this policy change? What's going to get built? Where? What will it cost? Um, We don't have that crystal ball unless you guys are hiding one that I don't know about (laughs) But we do have a few communities we've seen around the country um, go first uh, or at least try these so um, Eric Kelly, what do you guys think any lessons that we can learn?
24: Well, you know missing metal is really a housing type um, More than anything else. It's a house that has a smaller footprint It may share uh, some of the walls with other units and this is not new Um, missing metal types of houses have been around even before zoning. Um, and when you walk around old cities or, or college towns, you see missing middle houses. They're just called missing middle, they're just uh, quaint. Um, and I think what we're trying to do is really, in some cases, going back to what was permissible before a lot of zoning regulations came out in the 30s, 40s, uh, and 50s. So you have communities like Boston, Chicago, uh, which are well known for plexes, um, and, and Montreal. I think those are the three cities with the most number of plexes, and those plexes serve in those communities as starter homes for for people who live in those communities even today. Um, now, in terms of new types of uh, modern versions of it, um, it, it's it's always interesting to go look at a development that's designed for multiple types of properties on the same street, which is a lot Mm -hmm. of what missing middle is. Uh, Locally, we have an example of that. It's called Kentlands in Gaithersburg. So if you go to Kentlands, it's designed with a single family, side to side side with a duplex, a bunch of townhomes. So it's it's a really good example of a design community with uh, a lot of missing middle mix. And you can see there that the prices range from 400,000 to 1.5 million in the same community of about you know, fifteen hundred homes.
20: Mm-hmm.
24: Um, so that's what's uh, that's what's achievable. <laughs>